This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Prince Alberic and the Snake Lady by Vernon Lee. It's read by Evan Lampy. It runs one hour, 35 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. Prince Alberic and the Snake Lady by Vernon Lee To H.H. the Rainy Brook of Sarawak In the year 1701, the Duchy of Luna became united to the Italian dominions of the Holy Roman Empire, owing to the extinction of its famous ducal house in the persons of Duke Balthazar Maria and of his grandson Alberic, who should have been third of his name. Under this dry historical fact lies hidden the strange story of Prince Alberic and the Snake Lady. 1. The first act of hostility of old Duke Balthazar towards the Snake Lady, in whose existence he did not, of course, believe, was connected with the arrival at Luna of certain tapestries after the designs of the famous Monsieur Le Brun, a present from His Most Christian Majesty King Louis XIV. These gobelins, which represented the marriage of Alexander and Roxana, were placed in the throne room and in the most gallant suite of chambers overlooking the great rockery garden, all of which had been completed by Duke Balthazar Maria in 1680, and as a consequence, the already existing tapestries, silk hangings, and mirrors painted by Marius of the Flowers were transformed into other apartments, thus occasioning a general rehanging of the Red Palace of Luna. These magnificent operations, in which, as the Coteport sang, Apollo and the Graces lent their services to their beloved patron, aroused in Duke Balthazar's mind a sudden curiosity to see what might be made of the rooms occupied by his grandson and heir, and which he had not entered since Prince Alberic's christening. He found the apartments in a shocking state of neglect, and the youthful prince unspeakably shy and rustic and he determined to give him at once an establishment befitting his age, to look out presently for a princess worthy to be his wife, and, somewhat earlier, for a less illustrious but more agreeable lady to fashion his manners. Meanwhile, Duke Balthazar Maria gave orders to change the tapestry in Prince Alberic's chambers. This tapestry was of old and gothic taste, extremely worn, and represented Alberic the Blonde and the Snake Lady Oriana alluded to in the poems of Borderio and the Chronicles of the Crusaders. Duke Balthazar Maria was a prince of enlightened mind and delicate taste. The literature as well as the art of the Dark Ages found no grace in his sight. He reproved the folly of feeding the thoughts of youth on improbable events. Besides, he disliked snakes and was afraid of the devil. So he ordered the tapestries to be removed and another representing Susanna and the elders to be put in its stead. But when Prince Alberic discovered the change, he cut Susanna and the elders into st strips with a knife he had stolen out of the ducal kitchens. No dangerous instruments being allowed to young princes before they were of an age to learn defense, and refused to touch his food for three days. The tapestry over which little Prince Alberic mourned so greatly had indeed been both tattered and gothic. But for the boy it possessed an inexhaustible charm. It was quite full of things, and they were all delightful. The sorely frayed borders consisted of wonderful garlands of leaves and fruits, flowers, tied at intervals with ribbons, although they seemed all to grow like tall, narrow bushes, each from a big vase in the bottom corner, and made of all manner of different plants. There were bunches of spiky bays, and of acorned oak leaves, sheaves of lilies, and heads of poppies 
gourds and apples and pears and hazelnuts and mulberries, wheat ears and beans and pine tufts. And in each of these plants, of which those above named are only a very few, there were curious live creatures of some sort, various birds, big and little, butterflies on the lilies, snails, squirrels and mice and rabbits and even in a hare, and such pointed ears darting among the spruce fir. Alberic learned the names of most of these plants and creatures from his nurse, who had been a peasant and spent, and spent much ingenuity seeking for them in the palace gardens and terraces. But there were no live creatures there except snails and toads, which the gardeners killed, and carp swimming about in the big tank, whom Alberic did not like, and who were not in the tapestry. And he had to supplement his nurse's information by that of the grooms and scullions, when he could visit them secretly. He was even promised a sight one day of a dead rabbit. The rabbit was the most fascinating of the inhabitants of the tapestry border, but he came to the kitchen too late and saw it with its pretty fur pulled off and looking so sad and naked that it made him cry. But Alberic had grown so accustomed to never quitting the Red Palace in its gardens that he was unusually satisfied with seeing the plants and animals in the tapestry and looking forward to seeing the real things when he should grow up. When I am a man, he would say to himself, for his nurse scolded him for saying it to her, I will have a live rabbit of my own. The border of the tapestry interested Prince Alberic most when he was very little indeed. His remembrance of it was older than that of the Red Palace, its terraces and gardens, but gradually he began to care more and more for the pictures in the middle. There were mountains, and the sea was ships, and these first made him care to go out to the topmost palace terrace and look at the real mountains and the sea beyond the roofs and gardens. And there were woods of all manners and tall trees with clovers and wild strawberries growing beneath them and roads and paths and rivers in and out. These were rather confused with the places where the tapestry was worn out and with the patches and mendings thereof. But Alberic, in the course of time, contrived to make them all out and knew exactly whence the river came, which turned the big mill wheel and how many bends it made before coming to the fishing nets and how the horsemen must cross over the bridge then wind behind the cliff with the chapel and pass through the woods of firs in order to get from the castle in the left-hand corner nearest the bottom of the town over which the sun was shining with all its beams and a wind blowing with inflated cheeks on the top right hand close to the top. The center of the tapestry was the most worn and discolored, and it was for this reason perhaps that little Albert scarcely noticed it for some years, his eyes and mind led away by the bright red and yellow of the border of fruit and flowers and the still vivid green and orange of the background landscape. Red, yellow, and orange, even green had faded in the center into pale blue and the lilac. Even the green had grown an odd dusty tint. And the figures seemed like ghosts, sometimes emerging and then receding again into vagueness. Indeed, it was only as he grew bigger that Alberic began to see any fingers at all. But then for a long time he would lose sight of them. But little by little, when the light was strong, he could see them always, and even in the dark make them out with little attention. Among the spruce firs and pines and against the hedge of roses on which there still lingered a remnant of redness, a knight had reined in his big white horse and was putting one arm around the shoulder of a lady who was leaning against the horse's flank. The knight was all dressed in armor, not at all like that of the equestrian statue of Duke Balthazar Maria in the square, but all made of plates with plates also on his legs instead of having them bare like Duke Balthazar's statue. And on his head, he had no wig, but a helmet with big plumes. It seemed more reasonable dressed than the other, but probably Duke Balthazar was right to go to battle with bare legs and a kilt and a wig, since he did so. The lady who was looking up into his face 
was dressed with a high collar and long sleeves, and on her head she wore a thick circular garland, from under which the hair fell about her shoulders. She was very lovely. Alberic got to think, particularly when, having climbed upon a chest of drawers, he saw that her hair was still full of threads of gold, some of them quite loose because the tapestry was so rubbed. The knight and his horse were, of course, very beautiful, and he liked the way in which the knight reined in the horse with one hand and embraced the lady with the other arm. But Alberic got to love the lady most, although she was so very pale and faded and almost the color of the moonbeams through the palace windows in the summer. Her dress also was so beautiful, and unlike those of the ladies who got out of the coaches and the court of honor, and who had on hoops and no clothes at, at all on their upper part, this lady, on the contrary, had that collar like a lily and a beautiful gold chain and patterns in gold. Alberic made them out little by little, all over her bodice. He got to want so much to see her skirt. It was probably very beautiful, too. But it so happened that the inlaid chest of drawers before mentioned stood against the wall in that place, and on it a large ebony and ivory crucifix, which covered the lower part of the lady's body. Alberic often tried to lift off the crucifix, but it was a great deal too heavy, and there was no room on the chest of drawers to push it aside, so the lady's skirt and feet remained invisible. But one day, when Alberic was eleven, his nurses suddenly took a fancy to having all the furniture shifted. It was time that the child ceased to sleep in her room and plague her with his loud talk, talking in his dreams. And she might as well have the handsome inlaid chest of drawers and the nice pious crucifix for her next door in place of Alberic's little bed. So one morning there was a great shifting and dusting, and when Alberic came in from the walk on the terrace, there hung the tapestry entirely uncovered. He stood for a few minutes before it, riveting to the ground. Then he ran to the nurse, exclaiming, Oh, nurse! Dear nurse, look, the lady. From where the big crucifix had stood, the lower part of the beautiful pale lady with the gold thread hair was now exposed. But instead of a skirt, she ended off in a big snake's tail with scales of still most vivid, the tapestry having not faded there, green and gold. The nurse turned round. Holy Virgin, she cried. Why, she's a serpent. Then noticing the boy's violent excitement, she added, you little ninny, it's only Duke Alberic de Blom, who is your ancestor, and the snake lady. Little Prince Alberic asked no questions, feeling that he must not. Very strange it was, but he loved the beautiful lady with the thread of gold hair only the more because she ended off in that long twisting body of a snake. And that, no doubt, was why the knight was so very good to her. 2. For want of that tapestry, poor Alberic, having cut its successor to pieces, began to pine away. It had been his whole world, and now it was gone. He discovered that he had no other. No one had ever cared for him except his nurse, who was very cross. Nothing had ever been taught him except the Latin catechism. He had had nothing to make a pet except the fat carp, supposed to be 400 years old, in the tank. He had nothing to play with except a gala coral with bells by Benevento Cellini, with which Duke Balthazar Maria had sent him on his eighth birthday. He had never had anything except a grandfather and had never been outside the Red Palace. Now, after the loss of the tapestry, the disappearance of the plants and flowers and birds and the beasts on its borders and the departure of the kind knight on the horse, the dear golden-haired snake lady, Alberic became aware that he had always hated both his grandfather and the Red Palace. The whole world, indeed, were agreed that Duke Balthazar was the most magnanimous and fascinating of monarchs, 
and that the Red Palace of Luna was the most magnificent and delectable of residences. But the knowledge of this universal opinion and the consequent sense of his own extreme unworthiness merely exacerbated Alberic's detestation, which, as it grew, came to identify the Duke and the palace as the personification and visible manifestation of each other. He knew now, oh, how well, every time that he walked on the terrace or in the garden at the hours when no one else ever entered them, that he had always abominated the brilliant tomato-colored plaster which gave the palace its name. Such a pleasant gay color, people would remark, particularly against the blue of the sky. Then there were the twelve Caesars. There were twelve Caesars, but multiplied over and over again. Busts with flaming draperies and silky garlands, one over every first floor window. Hundreds of them, all fluttering and grimacing round the place. Albrecht had always thought them uncanny, but now he positively avoided looking out of the window, lest his eyes should catch the stucco eyeball of one of those Caesars in the opposite wing of the building. But there was always one thing more especially in the Red Palace, of which a bare glimpse had always filled the young prince with terror, and which now kept recurring to his mind like a nightmare. This was none, no other than the famous grotto of the Count of Honor. Its roof was ingeniously inlaid with oyster shells, forming elegant patterns, among which you could plainly distinguish some colossal satyrs. The sides were built of rockery, and in its depths disposed in the most natural and tasteful manner was a herd of lyside animals, all carved out of various precious marbles. On holidays, the water was turned on and sputtered around in a gallant fashion. On such occasions, persons of taste would flock to Luna from all parts of the world to enjoy the spectacle. But ever since his earliest infancy, Prince Alberic had held this grotto in abhorrence. The oyster shell satyrs on the roof frightened him into fits, particularly when the flowers were plain. And his terror of the marble animals was such that a bare allusion to the Proferi rhinoceros, the giraffe Cipollini, and the Verde antique monkey sent him screaming for an hour. The grotto, moreover, had become associated in his mind with the great glory of the Red Palace, to wit, the dome chapel in which Duke Balthazar Maria intended erecting monuments to his immediate ancestors, and in which he had already prepared a monument for himself. And the whole magnificent palace, grotto, chapel, and all had become mysteriously connected with Albrecht's grandfather owing to a particularly terrible dream. When the boy was eight years old, he was taken one day to see his grandfather. It was the Feast of St. Balthazar, one of the three wise kings from the East, as is well known. There had been firing of mortars and ringing of bells ever since daybreak. Albrecht had his hair curled and was put into new clothes, his usual arrangement being somewhat tattered. A large nosegay was put into his hand, and he and his nurse were conveyed by complicated relays of lackeys and pages up to the ducal apartments. Here, in a crowded outer room, he was separated from his nurse and received by a gaunt person in the long black robe like a sheath and a long shovel hat, whom Alberic identified many years later as his grandfather's Jesuit confessor. He smiled a long smile, discovering a prodigious number of teeth in a manner which froze the child's blood and lifted an embroidered curtain pushed Alberic into his grandfather's presence. Duke Balthazar Maria, known as the ever-young prince in all of Italy, was at the toilet. He was wrapped in a green Chinese wrapper embroidered with a gold pagodas, and round his head was tied an orange scarf of delicate fabric. He was listening to the performance of some fiddlers and of a lady dressed as a nymph who was singing the birthday ode with many shrill trills and quavers, and meanwhile his face in the hands of a valet were being plastered with a variety of brilliant colors. In his green and gold wrapper, 
an orange headdress with the strange patches of vermilion and white on his cheek, Duke Balthazar looked to the diseased fancy of his grandson as if he, he had been made of various precious metals, like the celebrated effigy he had erected of himself in the great burial chapel. But just as Alberic was mustering up courage and approaching his magnificent grandparent, his eyes fell upon a sight so mysterious and terrible that he fled wildly out of the ducal presence. For though an open door he could see in adjacent closet of a man dressed in white, combing the long flowing locks of what he recognized as his grandfather's head, struck on a short pole in the light of the of window. That night, Alberic had seen in his dreams the ever young Duke Balthazar Maria descend from his niche in the burial chapel, and with his Roman lapets and corselet visible beneath the green blonde's cloak embroidered with gold pagodas, march down the great staircase into the court of honor and ascend to the empty place at the end of the Rockery Grotto, where, as a matter of fact, the statue of Neptune by a pupil of Bernini was, was placed some months later. And there, raising his scepter, receiving the obeisance of all the marbled animals, the giraffe, the rhinoceros, the stag, the peacock, and the monkeys. And behold, suddenly the well-known features waxed dim, and beneath the curly Pukuk, there was a round blank thing, a barber's block. Alberic, who was an intelligent child, had gradually learned to disentangle this dream from reality. But his grotesque terror never vanished from his mind and became a core of all his feelings towards Duke Balthazar Maria and the Red Palace. 3. The news, which was kept back as long as possible, of the destruction of Susanna and the elders threw Duke Balthazar Maria into a most violent rage with his grandson. The boy should be punished by exile, the exile to a terrible place, above all, to a place where there was no furniture to destroy. Taking due counsel with his Jesuit, the jester, and his dwarf, Duke Balthazar decided that in the whole Duchy of Luna, there was no place more fitting for the purpose than the Castle of Sparkling Waters. For the Castle of Sparkling Waters was little better than a ruin, and its sole inhabitants were a family of peasants. The original cradle of the House of Luna and its principal bulwark against invasion, the castle had been ignominiously discarded and forsaken a couple of centuries before when the dukes had built the regular town in the plains, after which it had been used as a quarry for ready-cut stone, and the greater part carted off to rebuild the city of Luna, and even the central portion of the Red Palace. The castle was therefore reduced to its outer circuit of walls, enclosing vineyards and orange gardens instead of moats and yards and towers, and to the large gate tower, which had been kept with one or two smaller buildings for the housing of the farmer, his cattle, and his stores. Thither, the misguided young prince was conveyed in a careful shuttered cart and a late hour in the evening, as was proper in the case of an offender at once so illustrious and so criminal. Nature, moreover, had clearly shared the Duke Balthazar Maria's legitimate anger and had done its best to increase the horror of this, of this just through terrible sentence. For that particular night, the long summer broke up into a storm of fearful violence, and Alberic ended, entered the ruined castle amid a howling of wind, the rumble of thunder, and the rush of torrents of rain. But the young prince showed no fear or reluctance. He saluted with dignity and sweetness the farmer and his wife and family and took possession of his attic, where the curtains of an antique and crazy four-poster shook in the draught of the unglazed windows, as if he were taking possession of the gala chambers of a great palace. And so, he merely remarked, looking round him with reserved satisfaction, I am now in the castle, which was built by my ancestor and namesake Alberic the Blonde. 
He looked not unworthy of such illustrious lineage as he stood there in the flickering light of a pine torch, tall for his age, slender and strong, with abundant golden hair falling about his very white face. That first night in the castle of sparkling waters, Alberic dreamed without end about the dear lost tapestry, and when in the radiant autumn morning he descended to explore the place of his banishment and captivity, it seemed as if those dreams were still going on. Or had the tapestry been removed to this spot and become a reality in which he himself was running about? The gate tower in which he had slept was still intact and chivalrous. It had battlements, a drawbridge, a great escuon with arms of Luna, just like the castle and the tapestry. Some vines, quite loaded with grapes, rose on the strong cords of their fibrous wood from the ground to the very roof of the tower, exactly like those borders of leaves and fruits which Alberic had loved so much. And between the vines, all along the masonry, were strung long, narrow ropes of maize like garlands of gold. A plantation of orange trees filled what had once been the moat. Lemons were espalered against the delicate pink brick wood. And there were no lilies, but big carnations hung down from the tower windows. And a tall oleander, which Alberic mistook for a special sort of rose tree, shed its blossoms on the drawbridge. After the storm of the night, birds were singing all around, not indeed as they sang in spring, which Alberic, of course, did not know, but in a manner quite different from the canaries in the ducal aviaries at Luna. Moreover, other birds, wonderful white and gold creatures, some of them with brilliant tails and scarlet crests, were peckering and struttering and making curious noises in the yard. And could it be true? A little way further up the hill, for the castle walls climbed steeply from the seaboard in the grass beneath the olive tree, white creatures were running in and out, white creatures with a pinkish lining to their ears, undoubtedly as Alberic's nurse had taught him in a tapestry, undoubtedly rabbits. Thus Alberic rambled on from discovery to discovery with the growing sense that he was in the tapestry, but that the tapestry had become the whole world. He climbed from terrace to terrace of the steep olive yard among the sage and fennel tufts, the long red walls of the castle winding ever higher in the hill. And on the very top of the hill was a high terrace surrounded by towers and a white shining house with columns and windows, which seemed to drag him upwards. It was indeed the citadel of the place, the very center of the castle. Alberic's heart beat strangely as he passed beneath the wide arch of delicate ivy-grown brick and clambered up the rough paved path to the topmost terrace. And there he actually forgot the tapestry. The terrace was laid out as a vineyard of vines, trussled on the top of stone columns. At one end stood a clump of trees, pines, and a big ilex and a walnut, whose shriveled leaves were screwed, strewed in the grass. But the back stood a tiny little house, all built of shiny marble, with two large rounded windows divided by delicate pillars of the sort, as Alberic later learned, which people built in the barbarous days of the Goths. Among the vines, which formed the vast arbor, were growing in open spaces large orange and lemon trees, and flowery bushes of rosemary, and pink pale bushes. And in front of the house, under the great umbrella pine, was a well with an arch over it, and a bucket hanging to a chain. Alberic wandered around in the vineyard, and then slowly mounted the marble staircase, which flanked the White House. There was no one in it. The two or three small upper chambers stood open, and in their blackened floor were heaped sacks and faggots and fodder and all manner of colored seeds. The unglazed windows stood open, framed in between their white pillars a piece of deep blue sea. 
for there below, but seen over the tops of the olive trees and the green leaves of the oranges and lemons stretched the deep sea, deep blue, speckled with white sails, bounded by pale blue capes and arched over by a dazzling pale blue sky. From the lower story, there rose faint sounds of cattle and a fresh sweet smell as of a cut grass and herbs and coolness, which Alberic had never known before. How long did Alberic stand at that window? He was startled by what he took to be steps close behind and a rustle as of silk. But the rooms were empty and he could see nothing moving among the stacked up fodder and seeds. Still, the sound seemed to recur. But now outside, and he thought he heard someone in a deep, low voice call his name. He descended into the vineyard and walked round every tree and every shrub and climbed upon the broken mass of rose-colored masonry, crushing the scent ragwort and peppermint on which they were overgrown. But all was still and empty. Only from far, far below there rose the starve of peasant songs. The great gold balls of oranges and the delicate yellow lemons stood out among their glossy green against the deep blue of the sea. The long bunches of grapes hung, filled with sunshine, like clusters of rubies and jackets and topazes from the trellis which patterned the pale blue sky. But Alberic felt not hungry, but suddenly thirst, and mounted the three broken marble steps of the well. By its side was a long, narrow trough of marble such as stood in the court of Luna, and which, Albrecht had been told, people had used as coffins in pagan times. This one was evidently intended to receive water from the well, for it had a mask in the middle with a spout, but it was quite dry and full of wild herbs and even a pale prickly roses. But there were garlands carved up upon it, and people twisting snakes about them, and the carving was picked out with golden brown minute mosses. Albrecht looked at it, for it pleased him greatly. And then he lowered the bucket into a well and drank. The well was very, very deep. His inner sides were covered, as far as you could see, with the long, delicate weeds like pale green hair. But this faded away into darkness. At the bottom was a bright space reflecting the sky, but looking like some subterranean country. Alberic was bent over it, was startled by suddenly seeing what seemed a face filling up part of that shining circle. But he remembered it must be his own reflection and felt ashamed. So to give himself courage, he bent over again and sang his own name to the image. But instead of his own boyish voices, he was answered by wonderful tones, high and deep, alternating, running through the notes of a long, long cadence, as he had heard them on the holidays of the Ducal Chapel at Luna. When he had slacked his thirst, Alberic was about to unchain the bucket, when there was a rustle hard by and a sort of little hiss, and there rose from the carved trough from among the weeds and roses and glided onto the brick of the well, the long, green, glittery thing. Alberic recognized it to be a snake, only had no idea it had such a flat, strange little head and such a long, forked tongue, for the lady in the tapestry was a woman from the waist upward. It sat on the opposite side of the well, moving its long neck in its direction and fixing him with the small, golden eyes. Then suddenly it began to glide round to the well circle towards him. Perhaps I wanted to drink, thought Alberic and tipped the bronze pitcher in its direction. But the creature glided past and came around and rubbed itself against Alberic's hand. The boy was not afraid, for he knew nothing about snakes. But he started, for on his hot day the creature was icy cold. But he felt sorry. It must be dreadful to always be so cold, he said. Come, try to get warm out of my pocket. But the snake merely rubbed itself against his coat and then disappeared back into the carved sarcophagus. Four. 
Duke Balthazar Maria, as we have seen, was famous for his unfading youth, and much of his happiness and pride was due to this delightful peculiarity. Any comparison, therefore, which might dis diminish it was distasteful to the ever young sovereign of Luna. And when his son was son had died with mysterious suddenness, Duke Balthazar Maria's grief had been tempered by the consolatory fact that he was now the youngest man in his own court. This very natural feeling explains why the Duke of Luna had put behind him for several years the fact of having a grandson, painful because implying that he was of the age to be a grandfather. He had done his best and succeeded not badly to forget Alberic while the latter abode under his roof. And now that the boy had been sent away to a distance, he forgot him entirely for a span of several years. But Duke Balthazar Maria's three chief counselors had no such reason for forgetfulness. And so in turn, each unknown to the other, the Jesuit, the dwarf, and the gesture, sent spies to the castle of sparkling waters, and even secretly visited that place in person. For by the coincidence of genius, the mind of each of these profound politicians had been illuminated by the same remarkable thought, to wit, that Duke Balthazar Maria, unnatural as it seemed, would someday have to die, and Prince Alberic, if still alive, became Duke in his stead. Those were the times of subtle statecraft, and the Jesuit, the dwarf, and the jester were notable statesmen even in their day. So each of them had provided himself with a scheme, which, in order to be thoroughly artistic, was twofold and so to speak, double-barreled. Alberic might live or he might die, and therefore Alberic might be turned to profit in either case. If, to invert their chances, Alberic should die before coming to the throne, the Jesuit, the dwarf, and the gesture, each privately determined to represent his death as purposefully brought about by himself for the benefit of one of the three powers which would claim the duchy in case of extinction in the male line. The Jesuit had chosen to attribute the murder to, to devotion to the Holy See. The dwarf had preferred to appear active in favor of the king of Spain, and the gesture had decided that he would lay claim to the gratitude of the emperor. The very means which each would pretend to have used had been thought out, poison in each case, only while the dwarf had selected arsenic, taken through a pair of perfumed gloves, and the gesture pounded diamonds mixed with champagne, the Jesuit had modestly adhered to the humble cup of chocolate, which, whether real or fictitious, had always stood his order in such good stead. Thus each of these wily courtiers disposed of Alberic in case that he should die. There remained the alternative of Alberic continuing to live. For this, the three rival statesmen were also prepared. If Alberic lived, it was obvious that he must be made to select one of the three as the sole minister and banish in prison or put to death the other two. For this purpose, it was necessary to secure his affection by gifts until he should be old enough to understand that he actually owed his life to the passionate loyalty of the Jesuit or the dwarf or the jester each of whom had saved him from the atrocious enterprises of the other two counselors of Balthazar Maria. Nay, who knows, perhaps from the malignity of Balthazar Maria himself. In accordance with each of these subtle machinations, each of the three statesmen determined to outwit his rivals by sending in Alberic such things as would appeal most strongly to the poor young prince living in banishment among peasants, and wholly unsupplied with pocket money. The Jesuit expended a considerable sum on books, magnificently bound with the arms of Luna. The dwarf prepared several suits of tasteful clothes, and the gesture selected, with infinite care, a horse of equal and perfect gentleness and metal. And unknown to one another, but much about the same period, each of the statesmen had sent his presence most secretly to Alboric. Imagine the astonishment and wrath of the Jesuit, the dwarf and the gesture, when each saw his messenger come back from sparkling waters with his gift returned, and the news that Prince Alberic was already supplied with complete library, 
a handsome wardrobe, and not one but two horses of the finest breed and training, nay, more unexpected still, that while returning the gifts to their respective donors, he rewarded the messengers with splendid liberality. The result of this amazing discovery was much the same in the mind of the Jesuit, the dwarf, and the jester. Each instantly suspected one or both of his rivals, then, on second thoughts, determined to change the present to one or the other, horse, clothes, or books, as the case may be, little suspecting that each of them had been supplied already, and on further reflection began to doubt the reality of the whole business, to suspect conveyance of the messengers, intended to insult on the part of the prince, and decided to trust only the evidence of his own eyes in the matter. Accordingly, within the same few months, the Jesuit, the dwarf, and the jester feigned grievous illness to their ducal master, and while everybody thought them safe in bed in the Red Palace on Luna, hurried on horseback, or in a litter, or on a coach to the castle of sparkling waters. The scene with the peasant and his family, young Alberic's host, was identical on the three occasions. And as the farmers saw that these personages were equally willing to pay liberally for the absolute secrecy, he had very consistently sworn to supply the desertantum to each of the three great functionaries. And similarly, in all three cases, it was deemed preferable to see the young prince first from a hiding place before asking to leave to pay their respects. The dwarf, who was the first in the field, was able to hide very conveniently in one of the cut velvet plumes which surmounted Alberic's four-post bedstead, and to observe the young prince as he changed his apparel. But he scarcely recognized the duke's grandson. Alberic was 16, but far taller and stronger than his age would warrant. His figure was at once manly and delicate, and full of grace and vigor of movement. His long hair, the color of floss silk, fell in wavy curls, which seemed to imply almost a woman's care in coquetry. His hands also, the powerful, were, as the dwarf took note, of princely form and whiteness. As to his garments, the open doors of his wardrobe displayed every variety that a young prince could need, and while the dwarf was watching, he was exchanging a russet and purple hunting dress, cut from the Hungarian fashion with cape and hood, and accompanied by a cap crowned with peacock's feathers, for a habit of white and silver trimmed with Venetian lace, in which he intended to honor the wedding of one of the farmer's daughters. Never in his most genuine youth had Balthazar Maria, the ever young and handsome, been one quarter as beautiful in person or as delicate in apparel as his grandson in exile among poor country folk. The Jesuit, in his turn, came to verify his messenger's extraordinary statements. Through the gap between the two rafters, he was enabled to look down onto Prince Alberic in his study. Magnificently bound books lined the walls of his closet, and in this gap hung valuable maps and prints. On the table were heaped several open volumes among globes both terrestrial and celestial, and Alberic himself was leaning on the arm of the great chair, reciting the verses of Virgil in the most graceful chant. Never had the Jesuit seen a better appointed study, nor a more precocious young scholar. As regards the jester, he came at the very moment that Alberic was returning from a ride, and having begun life as an acrobat, he was able to climb into a large ilex, which commanded an excellent view of the castle yards. Alberic was mounted on a splendid jet-black barb, magnificently caparisoned in crimson and gold Spanish trappings. His groom, for he even had a groom, was riding a horse only a shade less perfect. It was white and he was black. When Alberic came in sight of the farmer's wife, who stood shelling peas on the doorstep, he waved his hat with infinite grace, caused his horse to cacole and rear three times in salutation, picked an apple up while cantering around the castle yards, threw it in the air with his sword and cut it in two as it descended, and did a number of similar feats, such as taught only to the most brilliant cavaliers. Now as he was going to dismount, a branch of the ilex cracked, 
and the black barbed reared, and Alberic, looking up, perceived the gesture moving in the tree. A wonderful party-colored bird, he exclaimed, and seized the following piece that hung by his saddle. But before he had time to fire the gesture, had thrown himself down and alighted, making three somersaults on the ground. My lord, said the gesture, you see before you a faithful subject who braving the threats and traps of your enemies, and, I am bound to add, risking also your highness's sovereign displeasure, had been determined to see his prince once more, and to have the supreme happiness of seeing him at last clad and equipped and mounted. Enough, interrupted Albert externally. You need say no more. You would have me believe that it is to you I owe my horses and books and clothes, even as the dwarf and the Jesuit tried to make me believe about themselves last month? Know, then, that Alberic of Luna requires gifts from none of you. And now, most miserable conciliar of my unhappy grandfather, be gone! The gesture checked his rage and tried all the way back to Luna to get some solution of this intolerable riddle. The Jesuit and the dwarf, the scoundrels, had been trying their hand then. Perhaps, indeed, it was their blundering which had ruined his own perfectly concocted scheme. But for having come and claimed gratitude for gifts they had not made, Alberic would perhaps have believed that the gesture had not merely offered the horse which was refused, but had actually given the two which had been accepted, and the books and the clothes, since they had been books and clothes given, given into the bargain. But then, had not Alberic spoken, as if he were perfectly sure from what quarter all his possessions had come? This reminded the gesture of the allusion to the Duke Balthazar Maria. Alberic had spoken of him as unhappy. Was it? Could it be possible that the treacherous old wretch had been keeping up relations with his grandson in secret? Afraid, for he was a miserable coward at bottom, both of the wrath of his three counselors and of the hatred of his grandson? Was it possible, thought the gesture, that not only the Jesuit and the dwarf and the Duke of Luna also had been intriguing against him round young Prince Alberic? Balthazar Mario was quite capable of it. He might be enjoying the trick he was playing on his three masters, for they were his masters. He might be preparing to suddenly turn upon them with his long-neglected grandson like a sword to smite them. But on the other hand, might this not be a mere mistake and supposition on the part of Prince Alberic, who in his silly dignity preferred to believe in the liberality of his ducal grandfather than that of his grandfather's servants? Might the horse and all the rest not really be gifts from either the dwarf or the Jesuit, although neither got credit for it? No, no! exclaimed the gesture, for he hated his fellow servants worse than his master. Anything better than that. Rather a thousand times that it were the duke himself who had outwitted them. Then in his bitterness, having gone over the old arguments again and again, some additional circumstances returned to his memory. The black groom was deaf and dumb, but the peasants, it appeared, had been quite unable to extract any information from him. But he had arrived with those particular horses only a few months ago, the gift, the peasants had thought, from the old Duke of Luna. But Alberic, they had said, had possessed other horses before, which had also thus been taken for granted must have come from the Red Palace. And the clothes and the books had been accumulating, it appeared, ever since the prince arrived in his place of banishment. Since this was the case, the plot, whether on the part of the Jesuit or the dwarf or that of the Duke himself, had been going on for years before the gesture had bestirred himself. Moreover, the prince not only possessed horses, but he had learned to ride. He not only had, read, had books, he had learned to read, and even to read various tongues. And finally, the prince not was not only clad in princely garments, but he was every inch of him a prince. He had then been consorting with other people than the peasants at Sparkling Water. He must have been away, or someone must have come. He had not been living in solitude. But when, how, 
and above all, who? And again, the baffled jester revolved the possibilities concerning the dwarf, the Jesuit, and the duke. It must be. It could be no other. It evidently could only be. Ah, exclaimed the unhappy diplomatist. If only one could believe in magic. And it suddenly struck him with terror and mingled relief. Was it magic? But the jester, like the dwarf and the Jesuit and the Duke of Luna himself, were altogether superior to such foolish beliefs. 5. The young Prince of Luna had never attempted to learn the story of Alberic the Blonde and the Snake Lady. Children sometimes conceive an inexplicable shyness, almost a dread of knowing more on subjects which are uppermost in their thoughts. And such had been the case of Duke Balthazar Maria's grandson. Ever since the memorable morning when the ebony crucifix had been removed from in front of the faded tapestry, and the whole figure of the snake lady had been for the first time revealed, scarcely a day had passed without there coming to the boy's mind his nurse's words about his ancestor Alberic and the snake lady Oriana. But, even as he had asked no questions then, so he had asked no questions since, shrinking more and more from all further knowledge of the matter. He had never questioned his nurse. He had never questioned the peasants of sparkling water, although the story, he felt quite sure, must be well known among the ruins of Alberic the Blonde's own castle. Nay, stranger still, he had never mentioned the subject to his dear godmother, to whom he had learned to open his heart about all things, and who had taught him all that he knew. For the duke's jester had guessed rightly that during these years at sparkling water, the young prince had not consorted solely with peasants. The very evening after his arrival, as he was sitting by the marble well in the vineyard looking towards the sea, he had felt a hand pressed lightly against his shoulder and looked up into the face of a beautiful lady dressed in green. Do not be afraid, she had said, smiling at his terror. I am not a ghost, but alive like you, and I, though you do not know it, your godmother. My dwelling is close to this castle, and I shall come every evening to play and talk with you, here by the little white palace with the pillars where the fodder is stacked. Only you must remember that I do so against the wishes of your grandfather and all his friends, and that if ever you mention me to anyone or allude in any way to our meetings, I shall be obliged to leave the neighborhood, and you will never see me again. Some day when you are big, you will learn why. Till then, you must take me on trust. And now, what shall we play at? And thus his godmother had come every evening at sunset, just for an hour and no more, and had taught the poor solitary little prince to play, for he had never played, and to read, and to manage a horse, and above all to love, for except the old tapestry in the Red Palace, he had never loved anything in the world. Alberic told his dear godmother everything, beginning with the story of the two pieces of tapestry, the one they had taken away, and the one he had cut to pieces. And he asked her about all the things he ever wanted to know, and she was always able to answer. Only about two things were they silent. She never told him her name, nor what, where she lived, nor whether Duke Balthazar Maria knew her. The boy guessed that she had been a friend of his father's. And Alberic never revealed the fact that the tapestry had represented his ancestor and the beautiful Oriana. For even to his dear godmother, and most perhaps to her, he found it impossible even to mention Alberic the Blonde and the Snake Lady. But the story, or rather the name of the story, he did not know, never loosened its hold upon Alberic's mind. Little by little, as he grew up, it came to add to his life two friends, of whom he never told his godmother. They were, to be sure, of such sort, however different, that a boy might find it difficult to speak without feeling foolish. The first of these two friends was his own ancestor, Alberic the Blonde, and the second, that large, tame grass snake whose acquaintance he had made the day after his arrival at the castle. About Alberic the Blonde, he knew, indeed, 
but little, save that he reigned in Luna many hundreds of years ago, and that he had been a very brave and glorious prince indeed, who had helped to conquer the Holy Sepulchre with Godfrey and Tancred and the other heroes of Tasso. But perhaps in proportion to this vagueness, Alberic the Blonde served to personify all the notions of chivalry which the boy had learned from his godmother, and those which bubbled up in his own breast. Nay, little by little, the young prince began to take his unknown ancestor as a model, and in a confused way to identify himself with him. For was he not fair-haired too? And Prince of Luna Alberic, third of his name, as the other had been first? Perhaps for this reason, he could never speak of this ancestor with his godmother. She might think it presumptuous and foolish. Besides, she might perhaps tell him things about Alberic the Blonde which might hurt him. The poor young prince, who had compared the splendid reputation of his own grandfather with the miserable reality, had grown up precociously skeptical. As to the snake, with whom he played every day in the grass, and whom was his only companion during the many hours of his godmother's absence, he would willingly have spoken of her, and had once been on the point of doing so. But he had noticed that the mere name of such creatures seemed to be odious to his grandmother. Whenever, in her readings, they came across any mention of serpents, his godmother would exclaim, Let's skip that, with a look of intense pain in her usually cheerful countenance. It was a pity, Alberic thought, that so lovely and dear lady should feel such hatred towards any living creature, particularly towards a kind which, like his own tame grass snake, was perfectly harmless. But he loved her too much to dream of thwarting her, and he was very grateful to his tame snake for having the tact never to show herself at the hour of his godmother's visits. But to return to the story represented on the dear faded tapestry in the Red Palace. When Prince Alberic, unconscious to himself, was beginning to turn into a full-grown and gallant-looking youth, a change began to take place in him, and it was about the story of his ancestor and the Lady Oriana. He thought of it more than ever, and it began to haunt his dreams. Only it was now a vaguely painful thought, and while dreading still to know more, he began to experience a restless, miserable craving to know all. His curiosity was like a thorn in his flesh, working its way in and in, and it seemed something almost more than a curiosity. And yet he was still shy and frightened of the subject. Nay, the greater his craving to know, the greater grew a strange certainty that the knowing would be accompanied by evil. So although many people could have answered, the very peasants, the fishermen of the coast, and first and foremost his godmother, he let months pass before he asked the question. It and the answer came of a sudden. There occasionally came to sparkling waters an old man, who united in his tattered person the trades of mending crockery and reciting fairy tales. He would seat himself in summer under the spreading fig tree in the castle yard, and in winter by the peasant's deep black chimney, alternately boring holes in pipkins or gluing plate edges and singing in a cracked nasal voice, but not without dignity and charm of manner. The stories of the king of Portugal's cowherd and the feathers of the griffin, or some of the many stanzas of Orlando or Jerusalem delivered, which he knew by heart. Our young prince had always avoided him, partly from a vague fear of a mention of his ancestor and the snake lady, and partly because of something vaguely sinister in the old man's eyes. But now he awaited with impatience the vagrant's periodical return, and on one occasion summoned him to his own chamber. Sing me, he commanded, the story of Alberic the Blonde and the snake lady. The old man hesitated and answered with a strange look. My lord, I do not know it. A sudden feeling, such as the youth had never experienced before, seized hold of Alberic. He did not recognize himself. He saw and heard himself, as if it were someone else, not first at some pieces of gold, 
and those of his grandmother had given him, and then his following piece hung on a wall. And as he did so, he had a strange thought, I must be mad. But he merely said sternly, Old man, that is not true. Sing that story at once if you value your money and your safety. The vagrant took his white bearded chin in his hand, mused, and then fumbling among the files and drills and pieces of wire in his tool basket, which made a faint metallic accompaniment, he slowly began to chant the following stanzas. Six. Now listen, courteous prince, to what beheld your ancestors, the valorous Alberic returning from the Holy Land. Already a year had passed since the strongholds of Jerusalem had fallen beneath the blows of the faithful, and since the sepulcher of Christ had been delivered from the worshippers of Machemet, the great Godfrey was enthroned as its guardian, and the mighty barons, his companions, were wending their way homeward, Tancred and Bohemad and Reynold and the rest. The valorous Alberic, the honor of Luna after many perilous adventures brought by the anger of the wizard Machemet, was shipwrecked on his homeward way and cast alone of all his great following upon the rocky shore of an unknown island. He wandered long about among woods and pleasant pastures, but without ever seeing any signs of habitation, nourishing himself solely on the berries and clean water and taking his rest on the green grass beneath the trees. At length, after some days of wandering, he came to a dense forest, the like of which he had never seen before. So deep was its shade and so tangled were its bows. He broke the branches with his iron-gloved hand and the air became filled with the croaking screeching of dreadful night birds. He pushed his way with his shoulder and knee, trampling the broken leafage underfoot, and the air was filled with the roaring of monstrous lions and tigers. He grasped his sharp double-edged sword and hewed through the interlaced branches, and the air was filled with the shrieks and sobs of a vanquished city. But the night of Luna went on, undaunted, cutting his way through the enchanted wood. And behold, as he issued thence, there rose before him lordly castle as of some great prince, situate in a pleasant meadow among running streams. And as Alberic approached the portcullis were raised and the drawbridge lowered, and there arose sounds of fiefs and bugles. But nowhere could he descry any living creature around. And Alberic entered the castle and found there in guard rooms full of shiny arms and chambers spread with rich stuffs and a banqueting hall and a great table laid and a chair of state at the end. And as he entered, a concert of invisible voices and instruments greeted him sweetly and called him by name and bid him welcome, but not a living soul did he see. So he sat down at the table, and as he did so, invisible hands filled his cups and his plates and ministered to him with delicacies of all sorts. Now, when the good knight had eaten and drunken his fill, he drank to the health of his unknown host, declaring himself the servant thereof with his sword and heart, after which Weary with wandering, he prepared to take rest on the carpets which strewn the ground. But invisible hands unbuckled his armor and clad him in silken robes and led him to a couch all covered with rose leaves. And when he had laid himself down, the concert of invisible singers and players put him to sleep with their melodies. It was the hour of sunset when the valorous baron awoke and buckled on his armor and hung on his thigh the great sword Brillamorte, and the invisible hands helped him once more. And the knight of Luna went all over the enchanted castle and found all manner of rarities, treasures of precious stones, such as the great king possesses, and stores of gold and silver vessels and rich stuffs and stables full of fiery coursers, rarely caprisoned, but never a human creature anywhere. And wondering more and more, he went forth into the orchard which lay within the walls of the castle. And such another orchard, sure, was never seen, since... 
that in which the hero Hercules found the three golden apples and slew the great dragon. For you might see in this place fruit trees of all kinds, apples and pears and peaches and plums and the goodly orange, which bore at the same time fruit and delicate scented blossoms. And all around were set hedges of roses, roses, whose scent was even like heaven. And there was other flowers of all kinds, those into which the vain Narcissus turned through love of himself. And those which grew, they tell us, from the blood drops of fair Venus minions. And lilies, of which that messenger carried a sheaf who, who saluted the meek damsel, glorious above all womankind. And in the tree sang innumerable birds and others of unknown breed, joined melody in the hanging cages and aviaries. And in that orchard mist was set a fountain, the most wonderful ever made, its waters running in green, green channels among the flower, flowered grass. For that fountain was made in the likeness of twin naked maidens dancing together and pouring water out of pitchers as they did so. And the maidens were of fine silver and the pitchers of rock gold and the whole so cunningly contrived by magic art that the maidens really moved and danced with the waters they were pouring out. A wonderful work, most truly. And when the knight of Luna had feasted his eyes upon this marvel, he saw among the grass beneath a flowering almond tree a sepulcher of marble, cunningly carved and gilded, on which was written, here is in prison the fairy Oriana, most miserable of all fairies, condemned for no fault but by envious powers to a dreadful fate. As he read, the inscription changed, and the sepulchre showed these words, O knight of Luna, valorous Alberic, if thou wouldst show thy gratitude to this helpless mistress of this castle, summon up thy redoubtable courage, and whatsoever creature issue from my marble heart, swear thou to kiss it three times on the mouth, that Oriana may be released. And Alberic drew his great sword, and on its hilt, shaped like a cross, he swore. Then wouldst thou had heard a terrible sound of thunder, and seen the castle walls rock. But Alberic, nothing daunted, repeats in a low voice, I swear. And instantly the sepulchre's lid upheaves, and there issues thence, and rises a great green snake wearing a golden crown, and raises itself and fawns itself the valorous knight of Luna. And Alberic starts and recoils in terror, for rather a thousand times confront alone the armed hosts of all the heathens, then put his lips on that cold, creeping breast. And the serpent looks at Alberic with great gold eyes, and big tears issue thence, and it drops prostrate on the grass. And Alberic summons courage and approaches. But when the serpent glides along his arm, a horror takes him, and he falls back unable. And the tears stream from the snake's golden eyes, and moans come from its mouth. And Alberic runs forth and seizes the serpent in both hands and lifts it up, and three times presses his hot lips against his cold and slippery skin, shutting his eyes in horror. And when the knight of Luna opens them again, behold, O oh wonder, in his arms no longer a dreadful snake, but a damsel, richly dressed and beautiful beyond comparison. 7. Young Alberic sickened that very night and lay for many days with raging fever. The peasant's wife and the good neighboring priest nursed him unhelped. For when the messenger they sent arrived at Luna, Duke Balthazar was busy rehearsing a grand ballet in which he himself danced the part of Phoebus Apollo, and the ducal physician was therefore dispatched to sparkling waters only when the young prince was already recovering. Prince Alberic undoubtedly passed through a very bad illness and went, and went fairly out of his mind for fever and ague. He raved so dreadfully in his delirium about enchanted tapestries and terrible grottoes, twelve Caesars with rolling eyeballs, barber blocks with percutes on them, monkeys of verde antique, and prophyry rhinoceries, and all manner of hellish creatures. And the good priest began to suspect a case of demonic possession. 
and cause candles to be kept lighted all day and all night and holy water to be sprinkled in a printed form of exorcism. Absolutely sovereign in such trouble to be nailed against the bedpost. On the fourth day, the young prince fell into a profound sleep from which he had wakened in apparent possession of his faculties. Then you are not the prophyr of rhinoceros, he said, very slowly as his eyes fell upon the priest. And this is my own dear little room at Sparkling Waters, though I do not understand all these candles. I thought it was the great hall in the Red Palace, and that all these animals of precious marble and my grandfather the duke in his bronze and gold robes were beating me and my tame snake to death with harlequin lathes. It was terrible, but now I sealed all f- fancy and delirium. The poor youth gave a sigh of relief and feebly caressed the rugged old hands of the priest which lay on his counterpane. The prince lay for a long while motionless, but gradually a strange light came to his eye and a smile to his lips. Presently he made a sign that the peasant should leave the room, and taking once more the good priest's hand, he looked solemnly in his eyes and spoke in an earnest voice. My father, he said, I have seen and heard strange things in my sickness, and I cannot tell for certain now what belongs to the reality of my previous life and what is merely the remembrance of delirium. On this, I would fain be enlightened. Promise me, my father, to answer my questions truly, for this is a matter of the welfare of my soul and therefore of your own. The priest nearly jumped on his chair. So he'd been right. The demons had been trying to tamper with the poor young prince, and now he was going to have a fine account of it all. My son, he murmured, as I hope for the spiritual welfare of both of us, I promise to answer all of your interrogations to the best of my powers. Speak then without hesitation. Alberic hesitated for a moment, and his eyes glanced from one long-lit taper to another. In that case, he said slowly, let me conjure you, my father, to tell me whether or not there exists a certain tradition in my family of the love of my ancestor, Alberic the Blonde, to a certain snake lady, and how he was unfaithful to her and failed to disenchant her, and how a second Alberic, also my ancestor, loved the same snake lady, but failed before ten years of fidelity were over and became a monk. Does such a story exist, or have I imagined it all during my sickness? My son, replied the good priest testily, for he was the most horribly disappointed in this speech. It is scarce fitting that a young prince, but just escaped from the jaws of death, and perhaps even from the insidious onslaught of the evil one, should give his mind to idle tales like these. Call them what you choose, answered the prince gravely, but remember your promise, father. Answer me truly and presume not to question my reasons. The priest started. What a hasty ass he had been. Why, these were probably the demons talking out of Alberic's mouth, causing him to ask silly, irrelevant questions in order to prevent a good confession. Such were notorious among their stock tricks, but he would outwit them. If only it were possible to summon up St. Paschal Balan, the new fashionable state who had been doing such wonders with devils lately. But St. Paschal Balan was required not only that you should say several rosaries, but you should light four candles on a table and lay a supper for two. After that, there was nothing he would not do. So the priest hastily seized two candlesticks from the foot of the bed and called to the peasant's wife to bring a clean napkin and plates and glasses and meanwhile endeavored to detain the demons by answering the poor prince's foolish chatter. Your ancestors, the two Alberics, a tradition in your serene family. Yes, my lord, there is such. Let me see, how does the story go? Ah, yes, this demon, I mean the snake lady, was a, what they call a fairy, or witch, Malfissa, or Strix is it? I believe the proper Latin expression, who had been turned into a snake for her sins. Good woman, woman, is it possible you cannot be a little quicker in bringing those plates for the sinus to supper? The snake lady, let me see. 
was a cease altogether being a snake if a cavalier remained faithful to her for ten years, and at any rate turned into a woman every time a cavalier was found who had the courage to give her a kiss as if she were not a snake. A disagreeable thing, besides being a mortal sin, as I said just now, this enabled her to resume temporarily her human shape, which is said to have been a fair enough. But how can one tell? I believe she was allowed to change into a woman for an hour at sunset, in any case, and without anybody kissing her, but only for an hour. A very unlikely story, my lord, and not very moral one to my thinking. And the good prince spread the tablecloth over the table, wondering secretly when the plates and glasses for St. Paschal Balon would make their appearance. If only the demon could be prevented from beating a retreat before all was ready. To return to the story about which your highness is pleased to inquire, he continued, trying to gain time by pretending to humor the demon, who was asking questions through the poor prince's mouth, I can remember hearing a poem before I took orders, a foolish poem too, in a very poor style if my memory is correct, that related the manner in which Alberic the Blonde met this snake lady and disenchanted her by performing the ceremony I had alluded to. The poem was frequently sung at fairs and similar resorts of the uneducated and, as remarked, was a very inferior composition indeed. Alberic the Blonde afterwards came to his senses, it appears, and after abandoning the snake lady, fulfilled his duty as a prince and married the princess. I cannot exactly remember what princess, but it was a very suitable marriage, no doubt, from which your highness is, of course, descended. As regards the Marquis Alberic, second in his name, of which it is accounted that he died in the Order of Sanctity, and indeed it is said that the facts concerning his beatification are being studied in the proper quarters. There is a mention of the life of St. Fred de Vallis, bishop and patron of Luna, printed at the beginning of the present century in Venice, with approbation and license of the authorities and inquisition. A mention of the fact that this Marquis Alberic, the second had contracted, having attained his lawful wife, a left-handed marriage with the same snake lady, such evil creatures are not subject to natural death, she having induced him there thereunto in hope of his proving faithful ten years, and by this means restoring her altogether to human shape. But a certain holy hermit, having got wind of this scandal, prayed to St. Fredervalis as a patron of Luna, whereupon St. Fredervalis took pity on the Marquis Alberic's sin and appeared to him in a vision at the end of the ninth year of his irregular connection with the snake lady, and touched his heart so thoroughly that he instantly forswore her company, and handing the Marquisate over to his mother, abandoned the world and entered the order of St. Romald for which he died, as remarked, in order of, order of sanctity, in consequence of which the present Duke, your Highness's magnificent grandfather, is at this moment, as befits so pious a prince, employing his influence with the Holy Father for the beatification of so glorious an ancestor. And now, my son, added the good priest, suddenly changing his tone, for he had got the table ready and lighted the t- candles, and only required to go through the preliminary invocation of St. Paschal Balan. And now, my son, let your curiosity trouble you no more, but endeavor to obtain some rest, and if possible... But the prince interrupted him. One more word, good father, he begged, fixing him with earnest eyes. Is it known what has been the fate of the snake lady? The impudence of the demons made the priest quite angry, but he must not scare them before the arrival of St. Paschal. So he controlled himself and answered slowly by gulps. Between the lines of the invocation, he was mumbling under his breath. My lord, it results from the same life of St. Fredalis that, in case of property, loss, fire, flood, earthquake, plague, 
that the Snake Lady, the we invoke most holy Paschal Balon, the Snake Lady, being of the nature of fairies, cannot die unless her head is severed from her trunk and is still haunting the world, world together with other evil spirits in hopes that another member of the House of Luna, the may we invoke most holy Paschal Balon, may succumb to her arts and be faithful to her for the ten years needed for her disenchantments. Most holy Paschal Balon, and most of all thee we call for aid against them. But before the priest could finish his invocation, a terrible shout came from the bed where the sick prince was lying. Oh, Oriana! Oriana! cried Prince Alberic, sitting up in his bed with a look which terrified the priest as much of his voice. Oh, Oriana! Oriana! he repeated, and then fell back exhausted and broken. Bless my soul! cried the priest, almost upsetting the table. Why, the demon has already issued out of him! Who would have guessed that St. Paschal Balon performed his miracles as quick as that? 8. Prince Alberic was awakened by the loud trill of a nightingale. The room was bathed in moonlight in which the tapers, left burning round the bed to ward off evil spirits, flickered yellow and ineffectual. Through the open casement came, with a scent of freshly cut grass, the faint concert of nocturnal sounds, the silvery vibration of the cricket, the reed-like quavering notes and the leaf frogs, and every now and then the soft note of an owlet, seeming to stroke the silence as the downy wings growing out of the temples of the sleep gods must stroke the air. The nightingale had paused, and Alberic listened breathlessly for its next burst of song. At last, and when he expected it least, it came, liquid, loud, and triumphant, so near that it filled the room and thrilled through the marrow like a unison of cremella viols. He was singing in the pomegranate close outside, whose first buds must be opening into flame-colored petals. For it was May, Alberic listened and collected his thoughts and understood. He arose and dressed, and his limbs seemed suddenly strong, and his mind seemed strangely clear, as if his sickness had been but a dream. Again, the nightingale thrilled out and again stopped. Alberic crept noiselessly out of his chamber, down the stairs and into the open. Opposite, the moon had just risen, immense and golden, and the pines of the cypresses of the hill, the further battlements of the castle walls, were printed upon her like a delicate lace. It was so light that the roses were pink, and the pomegranate flowers scarlet, and the lemon pale yellow, and the grass bright green, only differently colored from now they looked by day as if they washed over with silver. The orchard spread up its hill, its twigs separate leaves all glittering as if made of diamonds, and its tree trunks and spaliers weaving strange black patterns of shadow. A little breeze shuddered up the sea, bringing a scent of the irises grown for the root among the cornfields below. The nightingale was silent, but Prince Alberic did not stand waiting for its song. A spiral dance of fireflies, rising and falling like a thin golden flower, beckoned him upward through the dewy grass. The circuit of castle walls, jagged and battlemented, with Tufts of trees, profiled here and there against the resplendent blue pallor of the moonlight, seemed turned and knotted like huge snakes around the world. Suddenly, again, the nightingale sang, the throbbing silver song. It was the same bird, Alberic felt sure, but it was in front of him now, and was calling him onward. The fireflies wove their golden dance a few steps in front, always a few steps in front, and drew him uphill through the orchard. As the grass became steeper, the long trestlelaces, black and crooked, seemed to twist and glide through the blue moonlight grass like black gliding snakes. And at the top, its marble pillars, clear in the moonlight, slumbered a little. Glassic palace of white marble. 
From the solitary sentinel pine broke the sound of the nightingale. This was the place. A breeze had risen, and from the shining moonlight sea, broken into causeways and flotillas of small and of fettered silver, came a faint, briny smell mingled with that of the irises and blooming lemons, with the scent of the vague ripeness and freshness. The moon hung like the silver lantern over the orchard. The wood of the trestlesses pattered the blue luminous heaven, and vine leaves seemed to swim transparent in the shining air. Over the circular well in the high grass, the fireflies rose and fell like a thin fountain of gold. And from the sentinel pine, the nightingale sang. Prince Alberic leant against the brink of the well by the trough carved with ancient designs of serpent-bearing meands. He was wonderfully calm, and his heart sang within him. It was, he knew, the hour and place of his fate. The nightingale creased, and the shrill songs of the crickets were suspended. The silvery, luminous world was silent. A quiver came through the grass by the well, a rustle through the roses, and on the well's banks encircling the central blackness glided the snake. Oriana, whispered Alberic, Oriana. She paused and stood almost erect. The prince put out his hand, and she twisted round his arm, extending slowly her chilly coil to his wrist and fingers. Oriana, whispered Prince Alberic again, and raising his hand to his face, he leaned down and pressed his lips on the little flat head of the serpent. And the nightingale sang, but the coldness seized his heart, and the moon seemed suddenly extinguished, and he slipped away in unconsciousness. When he awoke, the moon was still high. The nightingale was singing his loudest. He lay in the grass by the well, and his head rested on his knees of the most beautiful of ladies. She was dressed in cloth of silver, which seemed woven of moon mist and shimmering moonlight green grasses. It was his own dear godmother. 9. When Duke Balthazar Maria got through the rehearsals of the ballad called Daphne Transformed and finally danced the part of Phoebus Apollo to the infant delight and glory of his subjects, he was greatly concerned, being benightedly humored, on learning that he had very nearly lost his grandson and heir. The dwarf, the jester, and Jesuit, whom he delivered in pitying against one another, had severely accused each other of disrespectful remarks about the dancing of the ballet. So Duke Balthazar determined to disgrace all three together and inflict on them the hated presence of Prince Alberic. It was, after all, very pleasant to possess a young grandson whom one could take to one's bosom and employ in being insolent to one's own favorites. It was time, said Duke Balthazar, that Alberic should learn the habits of a court and take upon himself a suitable princess. The young prince, accordingly, was sent for from sparkling water and installed at Luna in the wing of the Red Palace overlooking the Court of Honor and commanding an excellent view of the great rookery with its verd antique apes and prophorous rhinoceros. He found awaiting him on the great stairwell a magnificent staff of servants, a master of the horse, a grand cook, a barber, a hairdresser, an assistant, a fencing master, and four fiddlers. Several lovely ladies of the court, the principal ministers of the crown and the Jesuit, and the dwarf and the gesture were all ready to pay their respects. Prince Alberic threw himself out on the grass coach before they had time to open the door, and bowing coldly ascended the stairwell, carrying under his cloak what appeared to be a small wicker cage. The Jesuit, who was the soul of politeness, sprang forward and signed to the officer of the household to relieve his highness of this burden. But Alberic waved the man off, and the rumor went abroad that a hissing noise had ushered from under the prince's cloak and like lightning, the head and forked tongue of a serpent. 
Half an hour later, the official spies had informed Duke Balthazar that his grandson and heir had brought from sparkling waters no apparent luggage save two swords, a fawning piece, a volume of Virgil, a branch of pomegranate blossom, and a tame grass snake. Duke Balthazar did not like the idea of a grass snake, but wishing to annoy the jester, the dwarf, and the Jesuit, he merely smiled when they, he told, they told him of it. And he said, The dear boy! What a child he is! He probably also has a pet lamb, white as snow, and gentle as spring, mourning for him in his old house. How touching is the innocent of childhood. Hey, go! I was just like that myself, not so very long ago. Whereupon the three favorites and the whole court of Luna smiled and bowed and sighed. How lovely is the innocence of youth, while the duke fell to humming a well-known air. Thrissus was a shepherd boy, of which the ducal fiddlers instantly struck up the ritinello. But, added Balthazar Maria, with that subtle blending of majesty and archness in which he excelled all living princes. But it is now time that the prince, my grandson, should learn. Here he put his hand on his sword and threw back slightly one curl of his jet-black percue. The stern exercises of Mars, and also, let us hope, the freaks and frolics of Venus. Saying which, the old sinner pinched the cheek of a lady of the very highest quality, whose husband and father were instantly congratulated by all the court on this honor. Prince Alberic was displayed next day to the people of Luna, standing on the balcony among a tremendous banging of mortars, while Duke Balthazar explained that he felt towards this youth all the fondness and responsibility of an older brother. There was a grand ball, a gala opera, a review, a very high mass in the cathedral. The dwarf, the Jesuit, and the jester each separately offered his service to Alberic in case he wanted a loan of money. A love letter carried, or in case even, expressed in more delicate terms, he might wish to poison his grandfather. Duke Balthazar Maria, on his side, summoned his ministers and sent courtiers, booted and liveried, to the three great dukes of Italy, carrying each of them in a Morocco wallet emblazoned with the arms of Luna. An account of Prince Alberic's lineage and person and a request for particulars of any marriageable princesses and dowries to be disposed of. 10. Prince Alberic did not give his grandfather that warm satisfaction which the old duke had expected. Balthazar Maria entirely bent upon annoying his the three favorites had said he had firmly believed that he intended to introduce his grandson to the delight and duties of life, and in the company of this beloved stirpling to dream that he, too, was a youth once more, a statement which the court took with due deprecatory reverence, as the duke was well known never to have ceased to be young. But Alberic did not lend himself to so touching an idol. He behaved, indeed, with the greatest decorum, and manifested the utmost respect for his grandfather. He was marvelously assiduous in the council chamber, and still more so in following the military exercises and learning the trade of a soldier. He surprised everyone by his interest and intelligence in all affairs of state. He more than surprised the court by his readiness to seek knowledge about the administration of the country and the conditions of the people. He was a youth of excellent morals, courage, and diligence, but there was no denying it. He had previously no conception of satisfying to the graces. He sat out as if he had been watching a review. The delicious operas, the superb ballets which had absorbed half of the revenues of the duchy. He listened without a smile of comprehension to the witty innuendos of the ducal table. But worst of all, he had absolutely no eyes, let alone a heart, for the fair sex. Now Balthazar Maria had assembled at Luna a perfect bevy of lovely nymphs, both ladies of the greatest birth whose husband received the most honorable post, military and civil, and young females of humbler extraction, though not less expressive habits, ranging from singers to dancers to slave girls of various colors, all dressed in their appropriate costume. 
a galaxy of beauty, which was duly represented by the skill of celebrated painters on all the walls of the Red Palace, where you may still see the fading charms inhabited as Diana or Pallas or the Spangles of Columbine or the Turban of the Sibyls. These ladies were the object of Duke Balthazar's most munificently divided attentions. And in the delight of his newborn family affection, he had promised himself much tender interest in guiding the taste of his heir among such of these nymphs as had already received his own exquisite appreciation. Great, therefore, was the disappointment of his affectionate grandfather when his dream of companionship was dispelled, and it became hopeless to interest young Albrecht in anything at Luna save despatches and cannons. The court indeed found the means of consoling Duke Balthazar for this bitterness by extracting there from a brilliant co- comparison between the unfading grace, the vivacious though majestic character of the grandfather, and the gloomy and pedantic personality of the grandson. But although Balthazar Maria would only smile at every new proof of Albrecht's bearish obtuseness and ejaculate in French, Poor child! He was born old and I shall die young. The reigning prince of Luna grew vaguely to resent the peculiarities of his heir. In this fashion, things proceeded in the Red Palace at Luna until Prince Albrecht had attained his 21st year. He was sent in the interval to visit the principal courts of Italy and to inspect its chief curiosities, natural and historical, as befitted the heir to an illustrious state. He received the golden rose from the Pope of Rome. He witnessed the festivities of Ascension Day from the Doge Barge at Venice. He accompanied the Marquess of Montferrat to the camp under Turin. He witnessed the launching of a galley against the Barbary Corsairs by the Knights of St. Stephen in the port of Leghorn, and the grand bullfighting and burning of heretics given by the Spanish Viceroy at Palmero. And he was allowed to present when the celebrated Dr. Bori turned two brass buckles into pure gold before the Archduke of Milan. On all of which occasions the heir apparent of Luna bore himself with dignity and discretion, most singularly in one so young. In the course of these journeys, he was presented to several of the most promising heiresses in Italy, some of whom were of so tender an age to be displayed in jeweled and swathing clothes on brocade cushions, and a great many possible marriages were discussed behind his back. But Prince Albrecht declared for his part that he had decided to lead a single life until the age of 28 or 30, and that he would then require the assistance of no ambassadors or chancellors, but find for himself the future Duchess of Luna. All this did not please Balthazar Maria, as indeed nothing else about his grandson did please him much. But as the old duke did not really relish the idea of a daughter-in-law at Luna, and as the young Albrecht's whimsicalities entailed no expense and left him entirely free in his business and pleasure, he turned a deaf ear to the criticisms of his counselors, and letting his grandson inspect fortifications, drill soldiers, pour over parchments, and mope in the wing of the palace with no amusement save his repulsive tame snake, Balthasar Maria composed and practiced various ballets and began to turn his attention very seriously to the completion of the Rocky, Rocky Grotto and the Sepulchral Chapel, which, besides the Red Palace itself, were the chief monuments of his glorious reign. It was this growing desire to witness the fulfillment of these magnanimous projects which led the Duke of Luna into an ex expected conflict with his grandson. The wonderful enterprises above mentioned involved immense expenses and had periodically been suspended for lack of funds. The collection of animals in the rockery was very far from complete. A cam leopard of spotted alabaster, an elephant of Sardinian jasper, and entire families of a cow and sheep, all of corresponding rich marbles, were urgently required to fill up the corners. Moreover, the supply of water was at present so small that the fountains were dry save for a couple of hours on the very greatest holidays. 
And it was necessary for the perfect naturalness of this ingenious work that an aqueduct 20 miles long should pour perennial streams from the high mountain lake into the grotto of the Red Palace. The question of the sepulchral chapel was, if possible, even worse. For after every new ballet, Duke Balthazar went through a fit of contrition, during which he fixed his thoughts on death and the possibilities of untimely release. And of burial in an unfinished mausoleum filled him with terrors. It is true that Duke Balthazar had immediately after building the vast domed chapel secured an effigy of his own person before taking thought of the moment of his already buried ancestors and the statue 12 feet high representing himself in coronation robes of green bronze brocaded with gold holding a scepter and bearing on his head of pure silver a spiky coronet set with diamonds was one of the curiosities which had travelers admired most in Italy. But this statue was unsymmetrical and moreover had a dis dismal suggestiveness, so long as surrounded by empty niches. And the fact that only one half of the pavement was inlaid with discs of sardonyx, jasper, and cornelian, and that the larger part of the walls were rough brick without a vestige of the mosaic pattern of lapis luzia, malachite, pearl, and coral, which had been begun round the one finished tomb, rendering the chapel as poverty-stricken in one aspect as it was magnificent in another. The finishing of this chapel was therefore urgent, and two more bronze statues were actually cast, those to wit of the duke's father and grandfather, the mosaic workmen called the Medician Works of in Florence. But all of a sudden, the ducal treasury was discovered to be empty and the ducal credit to be exploded. State lotteries, taxes on salt, even a sham crusade against the day of Algiers had all failed to produce any money. The alliance, the right to pass troops to the duchy, the lighting out of the ducal army to the highest bidder had long since ceased to be a source of revenue either from the emperor, the king of Spain, or the most Christian one. The serene republics of Venice and Genoa publicly warned their, warned their subjects against lending a single sequin to the Duke of Luna. The dukes of Parma and Modena began to worry about bad debts. The pope himself had the atrocious bad habit to make complaints about the suppression of church dues and the interception of the Peter's pence. There remained to the bankrupt Duke Balthazar Maria only one hope in the world, the marriage of his grandson. There happened to exist at that moment a sovereign of incalculable wealth, with the only daughter of marriageable age. But this potentate, although the nephew by a recent pope, by whose confiscations his fortunes were founded, had originally been a dealer in such goods as are comprehensively known as dry salting, and rapacious as the princes of the empire, each was much too ashamed of his neighbors to venture upon alliance with a family of so obtrusive an origin. Here was Balthazar Maria's opportunity. The dry salter prince's ducats should complete the rockery, the aqueduct, and the chapel. The dry salter's daughter should be wedded to Alberic of Luna, that was to be third of a name. 11. Prince Albert externally declined. He expressed his dutiful wish that the grotto and the chapel, like all other enterprises undertaken by his grandparents, might be brought to an end worthy of him. He declared that the aversion to dry salters was a prejudice unshared by himself. He even went so far as to suggest that the eligible princess should marry not the heir apparent, but the reigning Duke of Luna. But, as regarded himself, he intended, as stated, to remain many years single. Duke Balthazar had never in his life before seen a man who determined to oppose him. He felt terrified and became speechless in the presence of young Alberic. Direct influence having proved useless, the Duke and his conciliars, among whom the Jesuit dwarf and the jester had been duly reinstalled, looked round for means of indirect persuasion or coercion. 
A celebrated Venetian beauty was sent for to Luna, a lady frequently employed in diplomatic missions, which she carried through by her unparalleled grace in dancing. But Prince Alberic, having watched her for half an hour, merely remarked to his equerry that his own tame grass snake made the same movements as the lady, infinitely better and more modestly, whereupon this means was abandoned. The dwarf then suggested a new method of acting on the young prince's feelings. This, which he remembered to have been employed very successfully in the case of a certain Duchess of Malfi, who had given her family much trouble some generations back, consisting in dressing up a certain number of lacqueries as ghosts or devils, hiring some genuine lunatics from the neighboring establishment, and introduced them at dead of night into Prince Albrecht's chamber. But the prince, who was busy at his horizons, merely threw a heavy stool and two candlesticks at the apparitions. And as he did so, the tame snake suddenly rose up from the ground, growing colossal in the act, and hissed so terribly that the whole party fled down the corridor. The most likely advice was given by the Jesuit. This truly subtle diplom diplomacist averred that it was useless trying to act upon the prince by means which did not already affect him. Instead of clumsily constructing a lever for which there was no fulcrum in the youth's soul, it was necessary to find out whatever leverage there might already exist. Now... On careful inquiry, there were discovered a fact which the official spies, who always acted by precedent and pursued their in inquiries according to the rules of the human heart as taught by the secret inquisition of the Republic of Venice, had naturally failed to perceive. This fact consisted in a rumor, very vague but very persistent, that Prince Albrecht did not inhabit his wing of the palace in absolute solitude. Some of the pages attending on his person affirmed that they heard whispered conversations in the prince's study on entering which they had invariably found him alone. Others maintained that during the absence of the prince from the palace, they had heard the sound of his private harpsichord, the one with the story of Orpheus and the view of Soracate on the cover, although he always kept its key on his person. A footman declared that he had found in the prince's study and among his books and maps a piece of embroidery certainly not belonging to the prince's furniture and apparel, more of a half-finished and with a needle sticking in the canvas with piece of embroidery the prince had thrust into his pocket. But as none of the attendants had ever seen any visitor entering or issuing from the prince's apartments, and the professional spies had ransacked all possible hiding places and modes of exit in vain, these curious indications had been neglected, and the opinion had been formed that Alberic, being, as everyone could judge, somewhat insane, had a gift of ventriloquism, a taste for musical boxes, and a proficiency in unmanly handicrafts which he carefully dissimulated. These rumors had at one time caused great delight to Duke Balthazar, but he had got tired of sitting in the dark cupboard of his grandson's chamber and had caught a bad chill looking through his keyhole. So he had stopped all further inquiries as officious fooling on the part of impudent lackeys. But the Jesuit fully adhered to the rumor. Discover her, he said, and work through her on Prince Alberic. But Duke Balthazar, after listening 20 times to this remark in the most delighted interest, turned round on the 21st, 20, turned round on the 21st time and gave the Jesuit a look of Jove-like thunder. My father, he said, I am surprised. I may say more than surprised at a person of your cloth descending so low as to make aspersions upon the virtues of a young prince reared in my palace and born of my blood. Never let me hear another word about ladies of the light manners being secreted within these walls. Whereupon the Jesuit retired and was in disgrace for the fortnight till Duke Balthazar woke up one morning with a strong apprehension of dying. But no more was said of the mysterious female friend of Prince Alberic. Still less was any attempt made to gain her intervention in the matter of the dry salter princess's marriage.
12. More desperate measures were soon resorted to. It was given out that Prince Alberic was engrossed in studies, and he was forbidden to leave his wing of the Red Palace with no other view than that of the famous grotto with the Verde antique apes and the Porphyria rhinoceros. It was published that Prince Alberic was sick, and he was confined very rigorously to a less agreeable apartment in the rear of the palace, where he could catch sight of the plastic laurels and draperies and the rolling plaster eyeball of one of the twelve Caesars under the corn sea. It was judicially hinted that the prince had entered into religious retreat, and he was locked and bolted into the state prison alongside of the unfinished sepulchral chapel, whence a lugubrious hammering came from the, came as the only sound of life. In each of these places, the recalcitrant youth was duly argued with by some of his grandfather's familiars and even received a visit from the old duke in person. But threats and blandishments were all in vain, and Alberic persisted in his refusal to marry. It was six now, months now since he had seen the outer world, and six weeks since he had inhabited the state prison. Every stage of his confinement, almost every day there, thereof, having systematically deprived him of some luxury, some comfort, or some mode of passing the time. His harpsichord and foils had remained in the gallowing overlooking the grotto. His maps and books had not followed him beyond the higher story with the view of the Twelve Caesars, and now they had taken away from him his Virgil, his inkstand and paper, and left him only a book, the Book of Hours. Balthazar Maria and his conciliars felt intolerably baffled. There remained nothing further to do, for if Prince Alberic were publicly beheaded or privately poisoned or merely left to die of want and sadness, it was obvious that Prince Alberic could no longer conclude the marriage with the dry salter princess, and no money to finish the grotto and the chapel or to carry on the court expenses would be forthcoming. It was a burning day of August, a Friday 13th of that month, and after a long prevalence of inverting Sirico, when the old duke determined to make one last appeal to the obedience of his grandson. The sun, setting upon ominous clouds, sent a lurid orange beam into Prince Alberic's prison chamber. At the moment that his ducal grandfather, accompanied by the jester, the dwarf, and the Jesuit, appeared on its threshold after a prodigious clanking of keys and clattering of bolts. The unhappy youth rose as they entered, and making a profound bow, motioned his grandfather to the only chair in the place. Balthazar Maria never visited his never visited him before this, his worst place of confinement, and the bareness of the room, the dust, the cobwebs, the excessive hardness of the chair affected his sensitive heart, and joined with irritation at his grandson's obstinacy and utter depression about the marriage. The grotto the ch and the chapel actually caused the magnanimous sovereign to burst into tears and bitter lamentations. It would indeed melt the heart of a stone, remarked the gesture sternly, while his two companions attempted to soothe the weeping duke. To see one of the greatest, wisest, and most valorous princes in Europe reduced to tears by the undutifulness of his child. Princes, nay, kings and emperors' sons, exclaimed the dwarf, who was administering Melissa water to the duke, have perished miserably for much less. Some of the most remarkable personages of sacred history are stated to have incurred eternal perdition for far slighter offenses, added the Jesuit. Alberic had sat down in his bed. The tawny sunshine fell upon his figure. He had grown very thin, and his garments were inexpressibly threadbare. But he was spotlessly neat. His lace band was perfectly folded. His beautiful blonde hair flowed in exquisite curls around his pale face, and his whole aspect was serene and even cheerful. He might be 22 years old and was of consummate beauty and stature. 
My lord, he answered slowly, I entreat your serene highness to believe that no one could regret more deeply than I do a spectacle as it's offered by the tears of a Duke of Luna. At the same time, I can only re re reiterate that I accept no responsibility. A distant groin thunder caused the old duke to start and interrupted Alberic's speech. Your obstinacy, my lord, exclaimed the dwarf, who was ex excessively a choleric person, betrays the existence of a hidden conspiracy most dangerous to the state. It is an indication, added the jester, of a highly deranged mind. It seems to me, whispered the Jesuit, O oh, savor most undoubtedly of devilry. Alberic shrugged his shoulders. He had risen from the bed to close the grated window into which a shower of hail was suddenly blowing with unparalleled violence when the old duke jumped up his seat with his eyeballs starting with terror, exclaimed as he tottered convulsively, The serpent! The serpent! For there in the corner the tame grass snake was placidly coiling up sleeping. The snake! The devil! Prince Alberic's companion! exclaimed the three favorites and rushed towards that corner. Alberic threw himself forward. But he was too late. The gesture, with a blow of his harlequin's lathe, had crushed the head of the startled creature. And even while he was struggling with him, the Jesuit the dwarf had given it two cuts with its Turkish scimitar. The snake! The snake! shrieked Duke Balthazar, heedless of the desperate struggle. The warders and equerries waiting outside thought that Prince Alberic must be murdering his grandfather and burst into prison and separated the combatants. Chain the rebel! The wizard! The man-man! cried the three favorites. Alberic had thrown himself on the dead snake, which lay crushed and bleeding on the floor, and he moaned piteously. But the prince was unarmed and overpowered in a moment. Three times he broke loose, but three times he was recaptured and finally bound and gagged and dragged away. The old duke recovered from his fright and was helped from the bed onto which he had sunk. As he prepared to leave, he approached the dead snake and looked at it for some time. He kicked its mangled head with its ribbon shoe and turned away laughing. Who knows, he said, whether you were not the snake lady. That foolish boy made a great fuss. I remember when he, had, when he was scarcely out of long clothes about a tattered old tapestry representing that repulsive story. And he departed to supper. 13. Prince Alberic of Luna, who should have been third of his name, died a fortnight later. It was stated insane. But those who approached him maintained that he had been in perfect possession of his faculties and that if he refused all nourishment during his second imprisonment, it was from set purpose. He was removed at night from his apartments facing the grotto with the Verde antique monkeys and the Proferi rhinoceros and hastily buried under a slab which remained without any name or date in the famous mosaic sepulchral chapel. Duke Balthazar Maria survived him only a few months. The old duke had plunged into excesses of debauchery with a view, apparently, of dismissing certain terrible thoughts and images which seemed to haunt him day and night, and against which no religious practices or medical prescriptions were of any avail. The origin of these painful delusions was probably connected with the very strange rumor which grew to a tradition at Luna, to the effect that when the prison room occupied by Prince Alberic was cleaned after that terrible storm of the 13th August of the year 1700, the persons employed found in a corner not the dead grass snake, which they had been ordered to cast into the palace drains, but the body of a woman, naked and miserably disfigured with blows and saber cuts. Be this as it may, history records as certain that the House of Luna became extinct in 1701, the duchy last being to the empire. Moreover, that the mosaic chapel remained unfinished forever. There was no statue save the green, bronze, and gold one of Balthazar Maria above the nameless slab covering Prince Alberic, and that the rockery also was never completed. Only a few marble animals adorning it besides the Prophyrian rhinoceros and the Verde antique apes. 
and the water supply being sufficient only for the greatest of holidays. These things the traveler could confirm. Also, that certain chairs and curtains in the porter's lodge of the now long-deserted Red Palace are made of the various pieces of an extremely damaged arras, having represented the story of Alberic the Blonde and the Snake Lady. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Misa. Hi, I'm Evan. And we're going to talk about Prince Alberic and the Snake Lady by Vernon Lee. Uh, all right, here it is, Evan. Uh, you recorded this without fixing mistakes editing. Yeah. It just recorded, right? You just sat down and recorded in two sessions, was it? Yeah, maybe two sessions. I just did it just to try out. I never read a book before. I, I have a feeling that this was your actual And it's a hard one. It's right? not easy. There's a, yeah, you, damn you, hard book to read. Help you mispronounced kind of many words and you just kept going, plowing through something I could never do. Uh, I'm not a narrator because I suck at reading aloud. But, um, I gotta tell you, there are so many times I'm like, no, Evan, that's not how that word is pronounced. (laughs) And one of them is a very common one, which is tapestry. You were calling it tapestry. It's not a tapestry. (laughs) It's a tapestry. It could be a tapestry. No, it's not a tapestry. (laughs) Um, maybe, maybe, maybe a Luna. Yeah. Yeah, Luna, where the women don't wear tops, it's a tapestry. <laughs> well, <laughs> what was your other excuse? This is—it's a fantasy, fantasy. Jesse. Yeah, it's fantasy, Jesse. <laughs> uh huh. And then the other one you said was, uh, you have to understand, I, I, I didn't speak to anyone until I was twenty-two years old. <laughs> I'm like, oh shit, I hope that's not true. Wow. <laughs> uh, that was no, a reference I... to something in the story, I think. Almost. Yeah, it was kind of. All right, good. You're very dry on direct message Twitter or whatever. So, um, uh, there was a there's a bunch. No, but of you also them. made a comment before, like you pronounce words like someone who's never like who only gets them on a books. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Excuse me of that once. Yes. Which yes, which is true is, for a lot of words. It's I, absolutely you know. true. You, if you're isolated. And you're re- like, uh, the, the funniest one was, I ever heard was, a uh, friend of a friend, uh, was talking about O-R-G-Y. <laughs> and he pronounced it orgy. <laughs> Not orgy. And I'm like, that's hilarious, right? Because it is, it's like, you're reading Hustler or whatever. <laughs> I assume it's Hustler. Um, and you see the O-R-G-Y and you just don't, you never had anybody correct you. <laughs> so I am going to an orgy tonight. <laughs> it's like, I don't think you are, sir. <laughs> or if you are, it's going to be your first time. Knock, knock, knock. Is this where the orgy happens? <laughs> <laughs> so there was one like uh draft uh a draft of air and you said draught and it's like wow. it's uh what what amazes me is that you can power through like you can power through that error and it's still readable and listenable um so you have the you have the ability to be a good audiobook narrator and obviously we've heard other ones you've done that are better like uh was the the incest brother one. and sister that one that one's better, um and then you did another one uh, Mr Adam I think was uh, also I did Mr Adam better. and I did uh, uh what's the other one nude 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 camp nudist camp where oh, w- w- you put that up already oh yeah I didn't put it up anywhere I sent it to you I um, never saw it I want to listen I want to schedule it now nudist <laughs> camp 
Excellent. <laughs> <laughs> um, sure. All right. Um, uh, did you guys notice the dedication? No. No. I'll read it. Um, yeah. So this was first published in the Yellow Book, July 1896. What did, what did you notice about it, Evan? Well, I read it. <laughs> you, yes, you put H. it in. The Rene Brook of Sarawak, or however it's pronounced. Sarawak, yeah. You got it. Uh, so about every word. So that word there, it looks on like my copy. It looks like rants, but it's not. It, the second e, the first e is actually looks like a c, but it's an e. So it's the ranny of oh, uh, the ranny. Yeah, to Margaret H. Brooke. Yes, that's right. Uh, Her Highness the Ranny Brook of Sarawak. So this is like, uh, this is something that, uh, you see on the, those true adventure magazine covers. Uh, uh, true man sort of, you know, men's sweats, they're called. They're kind of related to pulp magazines, but they're sort of more, a little later. And they're like, uh, usually the cover is like a guy with sh- sh- shirt off getting attacked by wild animals. And then, uh, it'll say, uh, uh, weasels tore my flesh. That's a famous one. Um, and they're usually like first person, uh, true adventure stories. Um, and one of them, a famous one is, uh, the white Raja of Sarawak. And it's the story of this Englishman who goes to, uh, Brunei, which is, I guess, part of Indonesia now, or attached to Indonesia. Um, and uh does some mercenary work and gets rewarded with his own kingdom, which eventually gets uh seceded back to Indonesia or something after like in the sixties. But for about a hundred years, uh from the mid nineteenth century to the uh true to World War Two and then sort of back for a little while after World War II, there was a royal family uh, that was quasi-British that was not from Br- uh, not in Britain. And that was uh, Sarawak, which is a, a region of an island in Asia. And so this lady, the Rani Brook of Sarawak, was uh, married to the king of... Uh, Sarawak, but she soon left him after, you know, um, their marriage wasn't so great. She goes back to London uh, and pawns her uh, diamond ring or whatever, and then finances the education of her kids and, you know, introduces them to royals and dukes and stuff so that they can eventually marry into money uh, in England. Um, This uh, person and Vernon Lee knew each other. As did uh, Oscar Wilde. So the, the, these are people they're clubbing with. <laughs> if you can imagine the uh, fin de sickle uh, 1890s clubbing set. <laughs> it's Vernon Lee, who is a funny looking lady. Uh, what's her real name? Violet Paget. Mm-hmm. Violet something. Yeah. I, 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 if, yeah, if I was Paget. me, I would have named myself Purple, pa- Purple Paget instead of <laughs> Vernon Lee. Um, when I'm clubbing with Oscar Wilde and the, uh, the Raja of Sarawak or the Rani of Sarawak. Um, so apparently a couple of people 
literary types alike, Vernon Lee, who I'd not heard of before this, uh, were um, friends with uh, this lady and um, dedicated books to her or her kids or something like that. So I, I, I'm not sure what that plays into the story because it seems like it would be related, but um, I can't exactly understand. Like, what is, she, is Vernon Lee saying, don't raise your kids <laughs> badly? <laughs> what is she saying? Or is it just like, hey, I, I wrote a story and it's dedicated to you? Because this is, I, I, I think so much about the, the setup for this story and not the payoff. What do you guys think about Oh, it's all story? set up. It's, it's all setting and the castle and the, the furniture. There's, mm-hmm. That's what made this really difficult to read is so much was just the porphyry. Uh, yeah. All the little knickknacks around the, around the castles and it's, it, it's all setting detail. It's all mood. It's all, yeah, it's all setting. Mm. Mm-hmm. But there are some things that are, that happened. Then we get stories within stories, right? Mm-hmm. The, the the first and I think most important story within the story is the tapestry itself, uh, which which made me think of the unicorn tapestries. What's yeah. that? You, you, the unicorn tapestries are a series of famous tapestries. Um, a couple of which are in the cloisters in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. There's a couple others scattered around the world. They're basically these beautiful ornate. I don't know when they're actually from. I'd have to look it up. Tapestries that that show the hunting of the unicorn and its oh, eventual okay. capture. Oh, that's they're, interesting. They're, they're world famous. Um, interesting. I am looking at pictures of unicorn tapestries. I don't know. Oh, okay, fourteen ninety five to fifteen oh five. Somebody on public the, domain review has covered them. Yeah, there you go. Um, and there are some very strange monkey looking tigers or. It, 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 they're, they're fantastical, so when, when yeah. everyone was reading the story, I immediately thought of these tapestries. There's, yeah. uh, There are actually um, rabbits in here, too, which is important to the tapestries. Mm-hmm. Um, the story I kept thinking of, there's a couple, actually, but uh, this is a lot in setup like um, The Alchemist by Lovecraft. I don't think you were on that one, Misa, were you? You're not a Lovecrafter. No. No. Um, yeah, I could see it. Well, actually, a lot of like of Lovecraft's and and the gold, uh, the silver family key. history type stories. Yeah, yeah. Um, Paul, what you were on? Were you on uh, the Alchemist? I make the Alchemist. I'm not it's sure. It's set in France. It's got a kid who's raised without parents. Um, he's told not to go into town, and uh, he's also told of a family curse in which uh, nobody. No male uh, will live past the age of 30. In fact, he'll die on his 30th birthday. Um, and it turns out there's a, a family curse um, that explains it, but the curse is implemented by an actual person who's been alive for s- centuries, um, uh, getting revenge very strangely. Hmm. So the setup is kind of similar, but the payoff is different. Um, another one that I really uh, thought of a lot about, and I... I guess it makes sense because uh, they're both supposed to be. Fairy yeah, Misa was on, Misa was on that one too. It was me, Misa, Marissa, Terrence, and Julie. Okay, but, it was a long time really? ago. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was 2020. It was two years ago. Oh, 
Huh. Well, two and a half years. Um, it, it's it's a very short story. Um, this one is very long. That one does not. Alchemist does not feel like a fairy tale. Um, this one very much this is, feels this like very a, fairy much a fairy tale. tale. But the length yeah. is excessive for the fairy. Like folk tales are really short. They're six pages at, if they're long. They can be like uh, a paragraph, right? In some case, in the short cases, they can be you know four or five pages on standard. This is like a novella. It's long, and yeah. that is weird for fairy tales. Um, uh, I, I used to not know the difference between fairy tales and folk tales. So, for anybody who doesn't know, folk tales are written by nobody. Fairy tales are folk tales that are written by an individual. Right. So Hans Christian Andersen, everything he wrote, fairy tales. Uh, whereas Hansel and Gretel, folk tale. That's Makes, the difference. Yeah, that's the difference. And it, it, we use them interchangeably, right? But they're not because folk tales come from, uh, they're, they're like stones that have been coming down the river for, for millennia, right? They're all rounded and we don't know where they came from except upriver. Whereas a fairy tale is like a guy who's been down to the river and see, seen all these stones says, I can do one of these. And he does. Well, what about like the Brothers Grimm? The, all the, the Brothers they, Grimm are folk tales. They're folk tales that were compiled by. Yes. Okay. They go out into the community and they say, hey, you got any stories? And they listen to the story. They write yeah. it down. Okay. You have, didn't you didn't you see the movie The Brothers Grimm? It's explained to it all. I did. It's an excellent story. It's an excellent movie, but no. So, so <laughs> I haven't seen that. <laughs> um, okay. So fairy tale was written by a specific person, and it's right. original. So Puss in Boots is a fairy tale. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, it's written by I think that's Hans Christian Andersen, and uh, it has like a psychology behind it that is different. Than the psychology of folktales. Folktales have psychology too, and sometimes they have like really weird ideology. Like there's a lot of very Christian uh, folktales, but it's it's not coming from an individual. It's coming from the community, right? Because one grandma would pass it on to another, it's to some kids, and then those kids grow up and become grandmas themselves, and then they they pass they pass on the story as they remember it. Right. And as it, as it fits together for them. And there are, there are like older fairy tales and younger fairy tales, but like Cinderella is, uh, a fair, a folk tale. I think I mm-hmm. just accidentally misused the, uh, there are older folk tales and younger folk tales. So s- some folk tales like Cinderella, that's almost in every culture. Like you can go to India and find Cinderella. It's different, but it's, it's got the core elements, right? Whereas with this, um, I think that this is almost based on a real tapestry. There are a number of images that are very uh, similar. There's a famous one, if you just type in Prince Alberic and the Snake Lady and then hit images on Google. There's one where there's a Snake Lady kissing a knight, right? And that's from 1890s. Um, It's a painting, but uh, I think, or uh, what's the... Lamia. Type in Lamia. Uh, L-A-M-I-A. Cause that's a, like a half, uh, it's a mother of monsters sort of creature. Um, and, uh, that usually will bring it up. 
So uh, the outside edges of Oh, yeah, John William Waterhouse. Waterhouse, of course. Uh, around the outside edges of the tapestry, we get the description of that first in the story, and then we get the eventually revelation of what's going on in the middle, which is the kissing of the snake lady, right? And then we eventually get the story behind what where the tapestry came from. But to me, the most interesting part about this story is that basically there's a neglected, locked-away child who's mm-hmm. not only is his, his tapestry, uh, you know, frayed and falling apart, so are his clothes. And his nurse is like, this is a job for me? <laughs> Mm. Uh, yeah, you know, I, I I feel a little bit sorry for you, but you're not my kid. And, uh, you know, I just work here. I'm not even one of these, uh, you know, political people who are in the thing. So uh, one of the, like, I'm looking at that, unic- one of the unicorn tapestries, right? And it is full of image, right? Everywhere there's plants. Everywhere there's there's intertwining and figures and it it is unrealistic in uh you know the position of body parts and distances between between things but it is rich in detail and so it's almost like you could retell this story of isa as a, a a lonely kid locked in the basement since he was a baby watching tv there's only one channel it's romper room and he falls in <laughs> love with the romper room lady except she's a snake Um, yeah I I found it very very biblical Mm, this whole uh thing I mean there was there was all those plants and animals that he they were naming Mm -hmm. and and it was it was like this kid who had like it's like sort of an opposite bible story like the snake is the good guy here and and had the snake made it through to the to the end, we would have been in a whole other world from this debauchery of the of the duke to this to this world that w- would have been something else. Like it, to me, it felt like kind of like a parallel kind of Eden type. Oh thing yeah, definitely. That, that, you know, and and yeah, the neglect is really important with this because mm-hmm. he's able to interpret mm-hmm. what he sees in the tapestries however he wants. Right, that's his first exposure to plants and animals is the tapestry. Uh-huh. And it's only when he goes to that castle of sparkling water, he finds out that the stuff is real. Which is Eden, essentially, right? Yeah. Which which is, um, yeah. yeah. And just the the way the tapestry is used to see him mature, like he starts out seeing the borders because mm-hmm. he's a little yeah. kid crawling around just studying the borders. And as he gets older, he sees the center part of it and he kind of – then he sees uh, this romantic couple. He doesn't get that from his family. Obviously, mm-hmm. he doesn't see a functional marriage nope. in his in his life, so he sees it here. It's like how you know people get their conceptions about romance from media mm-hmm. uh, these days. I think that's mm. that's still an issue, right? Like romantic comedies. I think or oh yeah, you know, that overall plot certainly affect how people what they expect in a relationship. Mm-hmm. And that's you know a lot. That's one reason I think the story is long. And why it really diverges from kind of the Lovecraft playing with similar themes about ancestry and all that. It's here. It's so much about just this kid growing up. Yeah, had to. The kid and, had to and, evolve. And in this very, it's like the outsider. If we were able to mm. see the outsider 
from a little kid. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I just want to put a pin on the whole idea that Mice was saying about biblical. If this is Eden, then we have a serpent in the garden. Y- yes. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. The, ser- the serpent is has been cursed, right? This, mm-hmm. There's actually a, um, another thing I was thinking a little bit about um, is uh, this is also a, a <laughs> seems like backstory inspiration for, and it's not unique to Vernon Lee, right? Um, Lady Hawk, you guys remember that movie? I love Lady Hawk. Yeah, yes. everybody loves Lady Hawk, right? <laughs> it's just a terrific movie. Rutger Hauer and uh, Michelle Pfeiffer and what's his name, the kid from. Matthew Broderick. That's him. The mouse. Or, yeah, the mouse. Yeah, the um, mouse. And the there's the evil... Ch- the dungeons. Yeah. The, and there's the evil church, right? And he's he's constantly self-narrating. Right? <laughs> um, and, and then you have this romance that is sort of beyond the Matthew Broderick character. Um, he's adjacent to it and appreciative of it, but uh, it's sort of like it's it's almost like distanced from him in the same way that uh, little childhood uh, Alberic is distanced from the romance of of his ancestor and the snake lady, uh, which is very interesting. And then if, uh, eventually he tries to recreate. Well, or uh, I say tries to, uh, he recreates that attempt to free her, mm-hmm. right? And then it fails. Um, the first time it fails with his ancestor is, uh, because of infidelity, right? Yeah. And here it fails because of, uh, outside forces, right? The, uh, family interference. So there, I, I went online to, you know, to see what other people had made of it. And a lot of people have tried to make something of it. And I read an, one of those undergraduate essays that there are many, many out there about this uh, that is talking about the story. And they're wholly, wholly focused on, you know, the I, gender identity stuff. I think, you know, it's definitely uh, readable into it, especially if, you know, Vernon Lee's, you know, dressing like a man or dressing like a boy. Um using a male pseudonym, blah, 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 right? I, I can see that. But just uh, the story proper by itself um, is interesting. And most of the academic stuff does not focus on trying to interpret the story. They're trying to interpret it in the context of Victorian repression mm-hmm. and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff. And I, mm-hmm. I'm i like, no, 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 no. That's, that's fine. And I like that. But that's not... The story is interesting into itself. And why, why is it so compelling a, a story? Um, I think it is engaging with that, uh, the, the snake and such, but it's also, it turns Eve into the snake. It does. Right? Well, Which, well, well, usually well, they're separated. Well, 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 you know about the, um, the pro, the pre Eve, uh, character of Lilith, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a little bit. I mm-hmm. thought of so, that so- too. So, so yeah, I mean, she's more Lilith than Eve. Yeah, but yeah. it isn't a lady a princess, prince, uh, princess Albareca, right? Um, and then it could be like an Eve uh, slash Lilith story, right? <laughs> which you know would have fed into the 
the desire that like there, if you read the Wikipedia entry for Vernon Lee, they go on, there's a lot of speculation about how many lovers she had. Right. Um, and it's like, yeah, I, okay, but I want to know more about the stories. And they just mention the stories. Uh, so I, I don't think we need to try and figure out who Vernon Lee is in the story. I'm just more interested in the fact that there's this weird dynamic where a lot of the story is not about Prince Alberic or the Snake Lady. It's about the grandfather who is playing a game not uh, with his grandson, but rather with his courtiers, right? To control, like, who's going to be the boss sort of thing. So why all is that in there other than, you know, eventually to frustrate the, what we think of as the main story. Um, and I don't <laughs> think that that it's bulk is explanatory enough for. I, I thought it was to contrast. It like, abs- absolutely yeah, is a yeah, contrast. It, it, it provides mundanity to the rest of the fantastical part of the story. Well, yeah. And, and like this, this palace that he's running and, and is in charge of is just so. <laughs> base and flat and and uh, like looking in a mirror whereas what she's offering is art and literature and 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 you know teaching and And play uh, she taught him to play and play yeah Yeah. how sad is that (laughs) actually i have a question about this because i mean usually it's you jesse who's you're trying to read it subversively or something but but I guess I'm, I'm just trying to, to. I'm just trying to understand. I'm gonna have it. to try to jump in here. And is he just got a pet snake? Yeah. Well, I thought about that too. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, the only question perverted, is right? mother character. I mean, someone educates right boy. It was yeah. like a fantasy figure. Absolutely. Is right? he just an autodidact who imagined all this from yeah. his? Is it just a fantasy? Um. That's, and that's kind of how I read it. This absolutely, time. and he's he's got. Was it? But what? How? But where did you in the story? How did you get to that? Well, one of the one of the ways you well, get to there. Oh, so no, there, it's from everyone else's point of view. It's just a, fa- a weird history in the family, right? And, yeah. And then it's a problem at the end because like, well, we got to, we got to marry this kid off. And he's like, I got to wait 10 years. He doesn't say it directly, right? No, but no. He, that's why they got to wait till I'm 30 yeah, until I'm married because I got to have fidelity for 10 years to liberate the snake lady. Um, and, and they just see it as a deluded child, a young man who's, who's gone nuts. But except but, for the very but, end with the woman though. That's just also a, given to us as a, as a, like a castle tale. But um, so but the, it, it made the, the so Duke the, yeah. insane at the end. He went crazy. Uh, maybe because he knows his line is over. I don't know why he went crazy, but the origin of these very painful delusions was probably connected with a very strange rumor, which grew to a tradition at Luna to the effect that when the prison room occupied Albrecht was cleaned after that terrible storm, blah, 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 they found this naked woman instead of a snake. Oh, rumor. Miserably oh, okay. disfigured with okay. blows and saber cuts. Mm-hmm. So, so there's no, uh, there's no yeah, reliable but, narrator yeah. telling us there's a woman there. No, that's true. That's true. I, I didn't. Yeah, you're right. Rumor. And, um, and he also none of none of this was in was written. He said, "I dreamt all of this when he was trying to get to the bottom of it." Right? He said, "I had a dream. Can you confirm my dream?" Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. It's it, it, it is very very cool. Uh the way it, it's it it is a weird fiction story, but it's done as a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. Um there's a I did a uh AA Milne. You guys know that's like Winnie the Pooh. Pooh Winnie the Pooh, right? I did an AA Milne story with Eric on reading Short and Deep not that long ago called The Green Door. Um, I heard it. It's good. Oh, yeah. It's a good story, right? Hmm. Uh, very short. It's under half hour. And kind of yeah. similar. We've got this kid who's growing up in a rich family in a fantasy land, right? Um, there's uh, The father says, you know, we don't go through that door. That, you know. And then when they go through, when he goes through, um, nobody recognizes him. And they seize <laughs> him and say, you know, the prince was not like the, the way... <laughs> yeah, you look a little bit like him, but no prince would act like that, the way you're acting, coming through. The mm-hmm. prince is dead. And then the princess who's supposed to marry him, uh, she goes through the door and they can go off into Eden together, right? Free from the trappings of their royal requirements, almost. Yeah. Um, so uh, that story works really well. Um, I understand every part of it. This story feels like it's working, but I've, I've spent a lot of time with the, with the, just trying to understand that there's the jester, the cleric, and who's the See, other those person? Were, those like my, uh, that was part of my, eat my Bible things, like the three dwarf. wise men, Why, right? Yeah. Right. So the dwarf and the, uh, like the dwarf made me think of, of, um, Hop Frog by Edgar Allan Poe. Which is a story of, you know, revenge. Uh, a, in that case, the dwarf is, he's also the jester. Um, and he, he's, you know, put upon by the court and, uh, gets his revenge and, you know, ends up hurting him too. <laughs> and that's kind of what we have here, but it's three characters who are doing that. And yeah, I wrote this down in my notes here. So they're, they each have their different loyalties, right? Right. Um, so the Jesuit is loyal to the Pope. Uh, the Jester, and that, that's obvious enough, right? Um, the Jester, mm-hmm. loyal to the Emperor. So I don't right. know, is, is, is this kind of making fun of the Emperor being a clown? Um, I don't know. Yeah. Um, the Dwarf, though, is loyal to Spain. Right. I don't know what to make of that. And they, then the I, divided loyalty. They all have different. They all have different. Uh, I mean, yeah, this is an Spain? issue with favorites, right? So courts in the early modern period always had these favorites. Yes, especially in the 17th century. Is that when this is set? 17th, 18th century. 18th oh. century. Oh, so the year 1700 is what it says somewhere. Yeah, oh, so, so it's, it's oh, late, so, oh, late 18th, so late 17th. So that's century. the war. The Spanish succession is about to happen. Spain's yeah. at its height is ready to go tumbling down. Okay, it makes me. Yeah, Luna became so there, extinct there in 1701. Really cool things we could break down here about the geopolitical situation, but certainly courts always had these favorites. And that was mm-hmm. like, because as the states expanded their power, kings really couldn't manage it anymore. So favorites became almost a, a crucial thing. Like, who was that guy in, in Spain that, in that, uh, in the 18th, the 17th century who messed up, who always gets blamed for the fall of the decline of Spain? Uh, yeah, I don't know, but I, I was thinking a lot about the French. But uh, always, they always played the favorites. So the favorites became a, a 
than the target of explaining why things go bad. Right. Right. They're they're the in modern, you know, stuff. So in Canada, when things are uh, going wrong and the prime minister is unpopular, usually they have a cabinet shakeup and they fire some people and replace them with other people, right? And they say, ah, things yeah. are going to change now. <laughs> Were you thinking uh, Antonio Perez? No, I don't. Good because so. I mean, he, me he wound up running. He may, he may, he went running from the Spanish court after screwing up in the Netherlands. So I thought maybe that's. Uh, I'll fight in a second. I, uh, I, I don't understand that aspect of the story. Other than it is she, she. I keep going back. Like, is it, is it about, you know, giving advice to the royal highness of Sarawak? <laughs> I don't think it is. But, but it you know it is about like this is a a weird kingdom where you're kicked out because you're not, you're fighting with your husband, but you're in another kingdom and you're trying to get your pawn your kids off to other royal people by you know spending money to get them at parties and dress them up and give them education and and it's like this sort of competition is what's happening in the story, right? I found the guy's name. Olivares is the one. No, I don't know if this how it's pronounced. O l i v a r e s. He's but he was a favorite, so these people always tended to get blamed, and they were very common globally in courts. You know, at the time, I just read a book. Oh, Gaspar de Guzman. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. He. Yeah. He was. So it's pretty potent. I mean, the text here doesn't give us so much on that, but there's some backdrop here, which which got me interested. Maybe there's maybe there's an angle to the story, or maybe it's just this is historical context that Vernon Lee is trying to put the story in. Mm-hmm. I don't know, but I, I still don't know what to make of yeah. it of the dwarf uh, and its lo- and his loyalty to Spain. Well, I think a dwarf is something you have at court, right? You have a, a priest, yeah. you have a dwarf, you have a jester. Sometimes the dwarf and the jester are the same character, but. Um, Alberic is distanced from these figures, right? One of, one of the most striking scenes, or sets of scenes, is when the three favorites go to uh, spy on him. Yeah. And they use their various skills, which they learned, right, by being who they are, uh, to do it. So I think the jester, who was an acrobat, uh, hides in a, in a high spot, mm-hmm. right? Um, why why is that in there? I don't understand it. I understand how it works in the story and it has the uh, effect of getting us to where where the fall happens is not a fall from infidelity. It's a fall from uh outsider interference. Uh about being so it's it is like a family curse story, right? But what's so especially interesting is that Alberic is actually our viewpoint on the more interesting story about the snake lady, right? How did she get her curse? Well, Mm -hmm. we hear, we have a story about that, right? And she's not actually half snake, half lady. She's half snake, half fairy. Yeah. Right. Fairy princesses. I understand that. Right. Uh, And I've read many folk tales where you have a, uh, you know, there's one called the doll princess. It's a terrific story. It's like, Guy has to go out look for a wife. He's sad because he's not good at it. Uh, little, it's called Doll in the Grass in the original. Um, a little 
doll-sized lady says, why are you crying? And she knows his name. Um, she knows the reason he's crying. And then she, she, he takes her back home, uh, and has to, uh, uh, get her to pass the test that the father has made. Um, all the other brothers bring home wives, um, to do the same job to pass the test. Um, it's almost like to see who will inherit the throne, but that's actually not. It, it's kind of weird. In any case, the test is you have to be able to sew, uh, spin and uh, weave and sew a shirt in one day, right? And that's, this tiny. very d- ruffled skin. It, it, yes, they're all almost. It, it's so interesting. The thing about folktales is you can always tell it's a folktale because the skills uh, involved are all very practical skills that people who would be listening to the stories we be getting. Whereas mm-hmm. folk tales, uh, whereas fairy tales are, they're much more like from a class perspective. Um, so there, there's often a prince or something in a, in a folk tale, uh, in a, yeah, in a folk tale, but it's just a representative because they still have the skills. They still have to have the skills of a peasant. Whereas in a fairy tale like this one, um, what skills does he have? He has to learn the skill to ride, which he learns, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, use a, a weapon, which he, we get some stuff about how he had a knife, right? Before he was supposed to. Um, but he doesn't actually have like farming skills, right? Plowing skills or, you know, donkey selling <laughs> skills or anything like that, right? Jack and the Beanstalk style stories. Um, so, uh, when she passes the oh, test... No, he, he has ventriloquism skills. Yes. <laughs> there you go. Uh, when he passes the test, um, uh, when she passes the test, he says, I will marry you. He kisses her, and then she resumes normal size. The curse is broken. Just like in uh, Lady Hawk, right? The, the, we, we know they can't meet except uh, for an hour a day, right? Uh, sunrise and sunset or whatever. Um, but then the eclipse, right? <laughs> and if they, they get the, I can't remember the Lady Hawk detail exactly, but basically if they get the right magic items and they meet at the right spot, then the curse can be forever, un, forever broken. Paul, do you remember the details, how, how they break the curse? They have to have some magic item or something. Yeah, they, 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 they gotta get the plot element and get it at the right place at the right time and, I mean, I mean, the eclipse thing is kind of like a sideline. They 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 try. It's not actually the actual way they break the curse. It's just a way for a chance for them to meet. But then, yeah, they finally get the. Don't the they magical... have to steal something? Um, yes. Yeah, I haven't seen it the since the movie. Which is where the mouse comes in because he's yeah. going into the ca- into the castle. And there's an evil priest, right? Uh, who's oh, yeah, actually he's the one who with the, the devil, right? Yes, right. Um, but it, it is like. Um, He's cursed to be a wolf by night. She's cursed to be an eagle by day or whatever. Falcon by day and never the twain shall meet. So it's, a, it's like a kind of a doubling of this. Um, but Alberic is, he's sort of attempt number two for this snake lady to free three. herself. Att- attempt three? Yeah, three. Really? He's the third. So yeah. was his the dad? Second one, the second one was, um, he came close to 10 years, but then the monks got him, and he became a monk. Right, yes. Right. Yeah, so he's the third. Yeah, so okay, so... so it's it, 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 it the rule of threes. It's all, yeah, it's the threes. Lots of threes here. Oh, so, uh, here's a question. Because uh, 
when we're doing a Lovecraft, we know all rumors are always true, right? Um, I'm not sure that that's true here. I, uh, let's assume it is for a moment. Is she ultimately dead? Because that's my big question. Because they say to kill her, you have, you have to sever her head from her trunk, which right. they didn't do. I don't think she's dead. It doesn't say, yeah, her head is severed from her trunk. It says she's all cut. It's smashed. Cut up and as if it was, uh, I'll see if I can grab. Oh, here it is. Um, the person's employed found in a corner, not the dead grass snake, which they had been ordered to cast into the palace drains, but the body of a woman, naked and miserably disfigured with blows and saber cuts. So, She'll be back. You can count on it. She'll be back. I I almost want to read this. Well, as, why, this is, well the family line's gone. So, but that's no. the thing. So now she's just going to be slithering around with nobody. Yeah, it is. Uh, it's like a super sad story, right? Because mm-hmm. nobody I gets. Guess the other question is: Does uh, Balthazar did Balthazar meet the Snake Lady? That was my question too. Why was he young forever? Like, what's up with him? Hmm. What what you know? There's something. Yeah, good question. Mm-hmm. He's he's a little sus. <laughs> <laughs> As they say in Fin de Sickle, nineteenth century uh, magazines. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but he hates the snake lady and he hates the devil. Like they say that right off the top. Like, yeah, I don't know what's what's going on with him. So his kingdom ends, or his duchy ends, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it becomes extinct, right? Which is uh, sort of uh, appropriate. That's what's happening in Europe. But that's is, another historical process. Yeah, the consolidation of states, yeah. and you know, it's still ongoing. It's just you know much slowed recently. But it is. It, it's uh, so. I'm going to read this last section here. Uh, where to start, though? Moreover that the mosaic chapel remained forever unfinished with no statue save the green bronze and the gold of Balthazar Maria above the nameless slab covering Prince Alberic, and that the rockery also never completed only a few marble animals adorning it besides the porphyry rhinoceros and the verd antique apes and the water. So, so there's the three and the water supply being sufficient only for the greatest holidays. Those things the traveler can confirm. Also that certain chairs and curtains in the porter's lodge of the now long-deserted Red Palace are made of various pieces of an extremely damaged Arras, having represented the story of Alberic the Blonde and the Snake Lady. So the story lives on, but you have to sit on the furniture and say, Oh, <laughs> oh, I noticed there's a they recycled it, right? Mm-hmm. But it seems like she she is the true protagonist. She wants to free herself of the curse. She grooms this boy, mm-hmm. right? Um and he makes friends. But the other way of reading is reading it naturalistically, which it's harder to do. But yeah, is he just friends with a with a snake? Grass snake. Um, yeah, and that he's just, insane. That just leaves the questions: How does he get this stuff? Because the right, because he, he didn't get it. Yeah, right, like the they, they send him a horse and he sends it back. Right. Yeah. 
You might just be getting them this stuff from the villagers. Or well, might, yeah, but, but how do you learn all the skills? How do you learn to ride and all that, everything else? I don't know. And read. The old man. The old man. Sit here and t- teach me to read. It's it's interesting because it there is it's a like class Lyman element. Just sort of was put in a library and figured it all out. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's how Lovecraft did it too, right? You just sit in the library and <laughs> there was, there was a, tw- a tweet from the Lovecraft bot yesterday and it was like an unfinished sentence, but it was, uh, it was a 17th, uh, early 17th century library, as you might find in blah, 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 and describe the wood paneling and, and, this, and then if sentence is finished, uh, usually I like just quote, I just quote tweet in and name the story. And this one, it says, it's heaven. <laughs> Right, because that is what Lovecraft thought was was heaven, and the idea really interesting in this story that you imprint on whatever is there, right? The reason you like ladies with afros is because you were raised by ladies with afros. <laughs> the reason you like uh, I don't know uh, white suits is because you watch a lot of Ma- Miami Vice. <laughs> <laughs> It's like he's imprinting on this snake uh, because his mom and dad aren't there. And he's got a nurse who sort of just, you know, looks things up on Google for him casually. He's like, oh, yeah, you wanted to see that rabbit? I I heard they're down in the kitchen. They're going to cook a rabbit. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy, can we see it? And they go down there and it's naked, right? It's been been skinned. Um, And so, yeah, he has like no... He, it is like he's. It's about neglect and locking away a kid, and then, and then the, the cortisol. Yeah, we have that kid, the heir, right? Oh yeah, the heir. We should probably like do something about that. <laughs> Ten years have gone by, and the kid's been like locked in the basement, right? Looking at the same tapestry, and then they come in and take his. They come in and turn his TV off, right? He's been watching Romper Room for. <laughs> Mm, yeah. <laughs> for 10 years it's his it's his whole world and and now they they change the channel or whatever like i don't want to watch new heart <laughs> <laughs> or whatever it is right? New Heart that that was a strange flex well you know what it is is it's like <laughs> when i was a kid scooby-doo is is the thing to watch right and then adults would want to watch things with live action i'm like that sucks well, i don't want to watch new heart new heart's not funny <laughs> 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 it's just not funny. I don't get it. I get Scooby Doo. Um. <laughs> Actually, the but, only way this like abandoning this 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 heir makes any sense, and we don't know much about the father, right? No, we know nothing. And almost anything, just that he dies. But there's got to be something up with that Duke and his permanent youth. Mm-hmm. So he made a deal with them. Otherwise, devil. I mean, what do you do with princes? You train them, you know. They eventually well, yeah, get there, but it's like brought up by that dude, he wouldn't have been prince worthy, right? Still, you're stuck with who you got. You yeah. Let me let me read you this. Still section. want to keep the family line going, right? You don't want to be yeah. absorbed by the empire. But not. A, but you don't need a family line if you're immortal, right? That's the other thing. Yeah, that's why I'm saying he's. There might be some. You know, mm, that's true. So I'm gonna I'm gonna read this. This is on page three or two ninety, depending on the PDF. He found the apartments in a shocking state of neglect, and the youthful prince unspeakably shy and rustic. 
Rustic is is the uh, 1890s version of um, uh, On the Spectrum. <laughs> and he determined what? to give. I mean, they don't have Rustic that. Rustic does not mean On the Spectrum. It, I mean, essentially, it is right. They don't have that phrase. They don't have autistic back then. Yeah, yeah, but rustic does not mean autistic, Jesse. Asperger's, Paul. I don't know. It, he's definitely weird. This kid is definitely yeah, weird. Yeah, yeah, but rustic is not the... Not rustic the means of the countryside, right? It means right. like... Yeah. So, so he, doesn't, he doesn't behave normally, right? He doesn't, I don't know, stand there with his hands behind his back, right? But nobody was there to tell him to do exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. So it, it's almost like he's a wild child. A shy and rustic, and he determined mm-hmm. to give him at once an establishment befitting his age, to look out presently for a princess worthy to be his wife, and somewhat earlier for a less illustrious but more ab- agreeable lady to fashion his manners. So this, this sort of that line you would never have there in a folktale. That is a sort of the subtle thing saying we got to get him a girl so he knows how to have sex. And uh, then we'll break his heart by taking her away. Um, and then he can marry someone who's appropriate for him, right? So it's, it's like, it, it's very subtle, but that's like a an attack, right? It's a controlling, uh, we're going to f- groom him to be what we need him to be. Meanwhile, Duke Balthazar Maria gave orders to change the tapestry in Prince Alberic's chamber. Why did he do that? Because he hates the snake and he hates the devil. Yeah, that's the explanation, but I think we can read this subversively. We continue. The tapestry was of an old gothic taste, extremely worn, and represented Albrecht the Blonde and the snake lady Oriana, alluded mm-hmm. to in the poems of Boyardo and the Chronicles of the Crusaders. I, I've never heard of these guys, these real people, or Bo- Boyardo. Anybody know? No, um, Duke Balthazar Maria was a prince of enlightened mind and delicate taste. The literature, as well as the art of the Dark Ages, found no grace in his sight. We should be reading this subversively, right? He reproved the folly of feeding the thoughts of youth on improbable events. Uh, That's the people who don't want you to play Dungeons and Dragons, right? Mm -hmm. Because it's going to send you to hell. Besides, he disliked snakes and was afraid of the devil. Why is he afraid of the devil? Because he made a deal with him. That's the thing. Yeah. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, why? We don't We don't ever hear about his wife, and we also don't know why he refused to marry that princess himself. Like, if he was so interested in He's the made salt. his own, he's under his own curse? I don't know. Yeah. It, it's never like, explained, it's that, right? Back to Evan's question, like, where, what's, you know... And then, Why does he need that prince the, to, to marry to get the money? Why can't he just do it himself? The next line is actually is the explana- explanation for why the tapestry. So this all all this stuff right before this is the explanation for why the tapestry is being taken away. So he ordered the tapestry to be removed and another representing Susanna and the elders to be put in its stead. There's the biblical again. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I, mm-hmm. I'm not super familiar with that story. Do you know that one, Paul? Uh, Susanna and the elders. No, I'd have to look that one up. Okay. But when Prince Albrecht discovered the change, and this is where he actually, this is the first time he actually does anything, right, in the story, he cut Susanna and the elders into strips 
with a knife he had stolen out of the ducal kitchens. No dangerous instrument being allowed to young princes before they were the age of to learn to fence. So I think a lot of this is writing distraction, like this stuff about no dangerous instrument. Like that is to distract. It's like a red herring thrown down to distract us from the fact that he just tore up, cut it up into strips, this other tapestry and refused to touch his food for three days, biblical days. Um, What do you say, Paul? Go, go. I want to, I want to read the uh, description of Susanna from the book of Daniel. Okay. A fair. This is from Wikipedia. A fair Hebrew wife named Susanna was. Oh, I do know this story. Yeah, you're right. By yeah. lecherous voyeurs as he bathed in the garden, having sent her tents away. Two elders bump into each other again when they spy on her bathing. They lust for her. Mm-hmm. They 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 cost her, demanding she has sex with them, which she refuses. They have her arrested, saying that uh, she was having sex with a a young man. She refuses to be blackmailed, and is going to be put to death when Daniel uh, comes and saves the day. So um, this this is actually uh, I've seen paintings of this, and uh, one of the really interesting things is this is um, one of those approved pictures where you see a naked lady in the pool, right? Yes, an approved naked lady. Uh, well, no, modest. She's she's tr- she's not trying to be sexually uh, promiscuous. She's just trying to clean herself, right? But there's these guys who are spying on her, and I believe one of them spies from a tree. Oh, really? Yes. yes. Oh, nice. Which makes, which makes me That's think beautiful. of Back to the Future. Well, it's it's also and, and, what and happens the in the story. Jester. Yes. Yeah. Yes, in the Jester. Yes. Yeah. And so it's uh, like, it's never explained why he cuts it up. But we you know think what he else? cuts it up because he's upset, right? Yeah. But um, he cuts it into strips. Like he's almost like maybe he wants to take out the bad things. Like, I'm going to keep this section. <laughs> Maybe. He uh, he was in the kitchen. When he was in the kitchen, he saw the rabbit that had been um, uh, skinned it. with yeah. him. Like, that's the that's got to be the knife. And, and um, I don't know, rabbits are all about fertility and... and um, they sure are. All of that stuff. And I think that's kind of part of that, too. Definitely. But again, you don't need to be fertile if you're immortal, right? No. In fact, heirs are threats. Heirs are threats, yeah. And and so he, like, by doing that, yeah. Um, Yes. So one of the the things about when you're looking at um, at the Bible and all the different Christians and and there's Jews, too, who have different uh, takes on what's in and what's out. Uh, this, uh, so, it's one of the additions to, uh, just on a Wikipedia entry. I, me- I remember reading this Wikipedia entry years ago, or maybe last year. It was one of the additions to Daniel placed in the Apocrypha by Protestants, with Anabaptists, Lutherans, Anglicans, and Methodists regarding it as non-canonical, but useful for the purposes of edification, right? So, people say, this is in, this is out, right? Yeah. Well, our, uh, our Duke... He says it's in, right? And then what happens is kind of what it's, – it's a gender reversal, right? Instead of Susanna being spied on, it's Albrecht being spied on. And what are they yeah. there to – why are they spying? Not because of sexual interest. They're not trying to see, like, his naked body, right? They're not trying to blackmail him into having sex with them. 
but rather it's to like get power, which is kind of what the favorites uh, like the when whenever they explain uh, why the French Revolution happened, um, uh, usually they start with the idea that the as the empire became bigger, uh, the emperor needs to bring his rivals close to him. And this happens in England too, right? They br- so the, all the dukes and, uh, you know, counts and all the people who control various districts of your kingdom need to be brought close to you so they don't rebel. They, be- they then vie for power within the court structure and then they neglect the... Uh, lands that they're from, right? And then that allows the imperial power or the king to control his kingdom better. But it also allows for a neglect uh, of the kingdom itself because the king becomes focused on court intrigue and, and not like uh, the traditional job of the king, which is you have somebody who's a, in dispute some merchant with another merchant, right? And they come to the king and have them decide, like in the biblical era, right? Solomon. as the He's a judge, essentially, right? But if you're not doing your job, um, then you end up with the uh, let them eat cake moment, right? And then, you know, <laughs> oh, I don't know what the one for today is, but it's probably something to do with, like, let them inject... Uh, <laughs> Um, what's the treatment for, uh, uh, what's no, 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 no. It's, it's the people who have, uh, oh shit. It's, it's a blood problem where you're, you can't process sugar. What's it called? Diabetes. Insulin. Insulin. Yeah. Let them, let them inject in their insulin or whatever. When they don't have, they can't afford their insulin. Right. (laughs) Uh, You've got like sort of so much corruption at the top and so much court intrigue, you know, we need to worry about the parliamentarian sort of thing. Uh, you know, uh, that bad one, that one bad Senator in Arizona, she's screwing things up for everybody. Right. Meanwhile, people are dying from cutting their diabetes medicine to try and serve, you know, pay the rent. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that kind of, uh, corruption, is happening in this story, but it's not like a detriment to the population. The rustic people in this story don't really exist except as periphery. It's about an individual love story that, you know, ends in tragedy. Yeah. Still, there's a, there's a paragraph that really interested me. It kind of gets back to, to what these states in the, in the 17th, 18th century were really up to. Uh Um, And they're, it wasn't good for the people. I mean, it was not a good time to be a peasant. Right? Nope. It's because these states were all going bankrupt and they all needed, they were all at war constantly, right? So 17th century, constant war, 18th mm-hmm. century, kind of continued that. And they're also doing what Balthazar is doing, um, different states to different degrees, but that's building things, right? And showing off their, their power. They're building Versailles or they're mm-hmm. rebuilding London after the fire of 
1667 was it um you know spain i guess i was in the 16th century the escorial but they're they're building they're rebuilding cities and investing all this money in the grandeur of court life and the question and then you got war on top of that and how do you pay for this all right so um and that's what poor duke balthazar is up against and we get this paragraph state lotteries Taxes on salt and even a sham crusade against the day of Algiers. All right. fields producing money. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The alliance. So, and then you got this, then it's like, we need alliances with different people. And what are the alliances are for? Passing troops, because everyone's at war with each other. Right. right. This is, as I think Paul mentioned, the war of the Spanish secession. Yep. Is going on in the backdrop of this. Um, so, yeah, so we've long, gone from okay. crusader kings, I, I think we mentioned in, yeah. uh, in, in the alchemist to Europa Universalis Four, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the alliance, the right to pass troops through the du, du, duchy. There's my duchy, duchy, the letting out of the ducal army to the highest bidder. So there you got your, yeah. uh, it's, your it's mercenaries. Yeah. Had long since ceased to be a source of revenue, either from the emperor, the king of Spain, or the most Christian one. That's France, right? Right. France was the most Christian king. Um, the Serene Republics of Venice and Genoa publicly warned their subjects against lending a single sequin to the Duke of Luna. The Dukes of Parma and Modena began to worry about bad debts. The Pope himself, blah, 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 right? Talks about his bad taste. And then who does he think to marry? Well, rich families, right? Let's, that's okay. We'll let some bad blood into the royal family if it bails us out of our money problems. Right. So he tries to say, well, why not this daughter of this dry salters? Mm-hmm. You know, which is like, I guess they're selling chemicals, right? Right. You know, like let these rich rising bourgeois families, you know, into the royal family, right? You know, through marriage because it's bringing in cash, right? Yeah. The French were doing this, like, oh, if you want to pay money, you can become a. We'll give you a noble title, right? Uh, what do they call it? Nobility of the of the rose or something, mm. as opposed to the nobility of the sword. The nobility of the sword, the, the true blood, you know, back to the Middle Ages. But the new ones who just bought their way in were, were kind of disparaged, but they were in, right? So there's like some really good historical context here mm-hmm. that I just really enjoyed. I want to read Anyways, the. That's um, enough about that. I want to read the description of the. I mean, there's a number of them. But, uh, this is on page five, page two ninety two. Uh, the description of the pa- tapestry. The center of the tapestry was the most worn and discolored, and it was for this reason, perhaps, that little Alberic scarcely noticed it for some years. It's very vivid to picture this, right? Like, he's looking at this thing, it's the only thing on his wall. Oh, man. Uh, His eye and mind led away by the bright red and yellow of the border of fruit and flowers, and the still vivid green and orange of the background landscape. Red, yellow, orange, even green had faded in the center into pale blue and lilac. Even the green had grown an odd dusky tint, and the figures seemed like ghosts, sometimes emerging and then receding again into vagueness. Indeed, it was only as he grew bigger that Albrecht began to see any figures at all, and then, for a long time, he would lose sight of them. But little by little, when the light was strong, he could see them always. You see how awesome the writing here is? He would lose sight of them. And little by little, when the light was strong, he could see them always. That doesn't even make any sense, right? 
<laughs> sometimes he could see them, sometimes he couldn't see them at all. But he could always see them, right? Because it's it's he closes his eyes and he can see them, right? Mm-hmm. It's every it's his world. Mm-hmm. That's so good. Uh, and even in the dark, make them out with a little attention. So this is imagination, right? A memory. Among the spruce firs and pines and against the hedges of roses on which there still lingered a remnant of redness, a knight had reined in a big white horse and was putting one arm around the shoulder of a lady who was leaning against the horse's flank. The knight was all dressed in armor. Not at all like that of the equestrian statue of Duke Balthazar Maria in the square, but all made of plates, with plates also on the legs, instead of having them bare like Duke Balthazar's statue. And on his head, he had no wig, but a helmet with big plumes. It seemed as mo- a more reasonable dress than the other, but probably Duke Balthazar was right to go into battle with bare legs and a kilt and a wig, since he did so. So I love how she has this back and forth, right? She says, it's absolutely like this. And then, of course, it makes sense like this the other way, right? <laughs> it's, it, she's having it both ways, which allows us to do that sort of rich reading. The lady who was looking up into his face was dressed with a high collar and long sleeves, on her head, she wore a thick circular garland, and uh, from under which her hair fell about her shoulders. She was very lovely. Albrecht got to think, particularly when, having climbed upon a chest of drawers, he saw that her hair was still full of threads of gold, some of them quite loose because the tapestry was so rubbed. It's almost like somebody was using it as carpet rather than a... The tapestry shouldn't get worn out like that, right? They're carrying bodies away in it. (laughs) (laughs) The knight and his horse were, of course, very beautiful. And he liked the way in which the knight reined in the horse with one hand and embraced the lady with the other arm. So his uh, this is so interesting about the story is it's all about gaze, right? So G-A-Z-E. Looking at, he's looking at it. We're looking at him looking at it. And then there's other people who are looking at him. And then... All at the at the deep depths of this story is the snake and the snake lady, who we very rarely get to see do anything. Right? We think, oh, the the uh, step uh, is it fairy step? It doesn't say fairy stepmother, right? No, godmother. I'm your godmother, right? She says, and mm-hmm. you can't talk about me. If you do, I can never come back. Um, and I'll come to you one hour every day and I'll teach you to play. She's an adult, right? So she is immortal too, in a certain sense, right? She's been alive. Maybe she only ages while she's in human form. Who knows? (laughs) It's a fantasy. So it can work any way you want it to, right? Um, but I love how it, it says like, this is what the Duke, uh, this is what this guy looks like. And, and little Alberic models himself on that guy, right? And then he imprints on the snake lady. And then he says, there's also this other model, which is what my uncle looks like. Uh, not my uncle. My gra- his grandfather? The Duke. Looks like. And he uh, wears a kilt and a wig going into battle. Which doesn't make any sense. But it probably works for him. Right? <laughs> so it's like, whose thoughts are those? Are they Alberic's? 
Because he's not telling the story, right? It's like so, an omniscient narrator, yeah. It, it's a really it, and the mm-hmm. omniscient narrator. It's like um, it's it's kind of like the way Lovecraft does it, right? Where we get the uh, ignorance of the characters being. Usually, it's not a first-person narration. It's usually um, some other outsider looking at it, and he's wrong about stuff. And we're, we know we're wrong about stuff in here, but we, yeah, it's, it's a, it's really well done. I'm just still not a hundred percent sure, unless it is the very simple things like, like as these, uh, many essays are saying, you know, they can't live their own lives to be the sexual beings they want to be in that repressive Victorian society. Okay. Maybe that's it. Uh, uh you know, there, there's something here. Um, there's no female character, very few female characters. There's the nurse who's mm-hmm. very angry and the snake lady. And there was maybe some peasants, but I was thinking about this. It would take this snake 10 years to become a woman. It's like the time it, 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 that it takes for anybody to even notice a woman as a hum- as a person of value it just takes that time. Otherwise, just, you know, this lowly being that's inconsequential and irrelevant. Like, I, I thought there was some of that in there, especially given the fact that she wrote this with a pseudonym. Like, wh- what did it take for her to to find her place in the world? Apparently, she did, uh, she did use uh, Vernon as her... As her name name. As her name name, yeah. And th- she lived in Italy, right? This is one of the things that a lot of people do when they can't live in the society they're born in, right? They move to another country and just live there and then go right. visit. Uh, I don't know. I, I just like, I don't know. It, 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 in terms of what else it could be. Uh, th- the symbolism is, is, it's every, like, it's, it's so symbol, like, I just read, keep going here. There's a description of her dress, right? Listen to this. Um, but Albrecht got to love the lady most, although she was so very pale and faded and almost the color of moonbeams through the palace windows in summer. Her dress also was so beautiful and unlike those of the ladies who got out of the coaches in the court of honor. So uh, we have a picture of like the little boy looking at the wind through the window at a bunch of ladies coming into the court of honor. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a feeling that the court of honor is not so honorable, right? No, no, because what's the next line? And who had ho- on hoops and no clothes at all on their upper part, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so confirmation, right? Uh, the lady, on the contrary, had a collar like a lily and a beautiful gold chain and patterns mm-hmm. in gold. Albrecht made them out little by little all over her bodice. So his reading into the image little by little stuff um is is actually really interesting because that's what we do into s- stories as well right we are given some colors we've given some words and then we read in things that are there or not there right all over her bodice he got to want so much to see her skirt dude look down why can't you see it it was probably very beautiful too, but it, it so happened 
that the inlaid chest of drawers before mentioned stood against the wall in that place, and on it a large ebony and ivory uh, crucifix. Mm -hmm. So what's blocking his view of (laughs) her skirt is a chest of drawers and uh, a giant cross, which covered the lower part of the lady's body. Albrecht often tried to lift off the crucifix, but it was a great deal too heavy. And uh, why is the why is the church so heavy? <laughs> and there was no not room on the chest of drawers to push it aside, so the lady's skirt and feet remained invisible. But one day, when Albrecht was eleven, his nurse suddenly took a fancy to having all the furniture shifted. It was time that the child should cease to sleep in her room and plague her with his loud talking in his dreams. What's he talking about? And she might as well have a handsome inlaid chest of drawers. Right? <laughs> it's like, oh, this is mine now. <laughs> and that nice, pious crucifix for herself next door. Wow. In place of Albrecht's little bed. So one morning, there was a great... So, like, for him, he's being stolen from in a certain sense, right? But for him, it's a wonderful thing. He gets to see what he is, you know, it's like, now the TV's not blocked anymore. <laughs> so one morning there was a great shifting and dusting and when Albert came in from his walk on the terrace he doesn't even get to go out in the gardens right he gets to walk on the terrace the hung uh, there hung the tapestry entirely uncovered <gasps> she's naked he stood for a few minutes before it riveted to the ground then he ran to his nurse exclaiming oh nurse dear nurse look the lady There, that part Evan did really well <laughs> I, I like Evan's uh-huh. girl voices. They're very cute. for uh, Especially his German girl voices. <laughs> for where the big crucifix had stood, the lower part of the pale, beautiful lady with the gold thread hair was now exposed. But instead of a skirt, she ended off in a big snake's tail, where scales of still most vivid, the tapestry not having been faded there, green and gold. So, I don't think it's a coincidence that the somebody put a um <laughs> a piece of furniture and a uh cross over the part that we're not supposed to see the snake Absolutely part not. right and then yes. the nurse holds the crucifix against herself against him right too. Uh, uh yeah he's friends with her even though she's not friendly right the nurse turned round holy virgin she cried why she's a serpent then, noticing the boy's violent excitement, she added, You little ninny, it's only Duke Alberic, the blonde, who was your ancestor, and the snake lady. <laughs> and then, somewhere, uh, oh, I'll just finish off the chapter here. Um, uh, little Prince Alberic asked no questions, feeling that he must not. Very strange it was, but he loved the beautiful lady with the thread of gold hair, only the more, because she ended off in the long, twisting body of a snake. And that, no doubt, was why the night was so very good to her. <laughs> wow. Um, so, yeah, it's very much like a Jervis Dudley, uh, The Tomb, or um, so a little bit like The Silver Key. But it, it does have this biblical uh, element, and it is very subversive. So, I really dig it. But it almost feels like it's not a fairy tale because of the, the length. Even fairy tales, they don't tend to be anywhere near this long. It's, it's, it, it is more like weird fiction in a certain sense, in the form of, of, um, a fairy tale. 
with the fairy tale uh, kingdom, right? It's set in Europe, but Luna, that's not a real place. There's a, there's a couple others like this uh, that are set in sort of fictional France uh, from this period that, you know, uh, are very sexualized Victorian um, menstruation, blood, <laughs> um, growing up and uh, meeting, going out into the la- uh, Yeah, what's the one I'm thinking of, Mice, if you heard it on Reading Short and Deep? Um, this lady, she marries a man and she wants to go out into the labyrinth and there, in the center of the labyrinth, there's a, she dances with the devil. <laughs> you don't know this one? I, no, I don't think so. I'll try and look it up. Uh, very good story, Evan. Thank you for picking it. I, I was a little bit skeptical because it was in that, uh, what was the collection called? Uh, that you picked it from? You lost Evan. Oh, we lost Evan. Oh, boo. Well, oh, no, I'm was, here. Sorry. Oh, this was I, your I, had my, I had my microphone off for a second. Yeah, it's in the, the Vandermeer big book, Classic Fantasy. It's it's really a good book. Yeah, I, I, I don't know why looking, that makes you skeptical. It's a great anthology. Um, well, the reason I'm skeptical, I think, is because when you're making these, yeah, it's what's it called? The Classic Fantasy? Yeah, and then the, there's a sequel, like Modern Fantasy. So it's yeah. like Tolkien is the is the barrier between the two. There it is. I don't know if that's Big justified, but there's some logic to it, I suppose. The but ultimate I, I, collection, I think is why I think the word that got oh, me was yeah, the ultimate collection. Right. Yes. <laughs> Obviously not. So but. it starts with, you know, it, it, and it's, I, I don't have this book, Evan, but I, I'm, I'm looking at the ISFDB. And the thing is, is I've read some of the stories in it. Um, and I, you know, yeah, that's a good thing to include. And then others I've not heard of, so I'm a little more skeptical about those ones. But, you know, if you say this is the the ultimate collection, um, and you're doing it chronologically, then they tend not to have five stories from the same year. The thing is, is they do have multiple stories from the same year, right? But not five. But the, the gaps can be huge. And then, like, how are you picking these? Right? Like, well, you if, read the introductions to these, yeah. these things. I, I've read them, and they're there's always they describe this that all the hand wringing that goes into choosing the stories and all the decisions and I, and I think part of that is probably true but a lot of it might just be I like the story and I, I think, think that yeah so like um you know they have there's not a, a method I guess a systematic method I right. don't know how you do it's, that there's so many stories it is very it's there are just way too many stories right and and they they increase and decrease in in the markets for what's available because everything has to be published somewhere. And most, most things are not that are self published. Don't get, uh, re-anthologized. Right. So I was a little bit skeptical, uh, especially considering I hadn't heard of the person. Uh, but uh, anybody read any other Vernon Lee? Cause this was pretty, pretty good. No, I've not. No, nope. I haven't either, but I thought this was really good. Yeah. Pretty, pretty interesting. And well written, like put together carefully. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't really know. I don't. I don't know what to make of that, other than yeah, this is well written and uh, put together carefully. But she has a number of other stories that I've never heard of. Um, and maybe are they all, available? Well, that's the thing, right? So 
I, I haven't put them on the PDF page because I, I just, you know, go through what I go through. Uh, but I would be interested in looking more. I, like, for example, from the same period, um, what's the lady who wrote, uh, the yellow wallpaper? Gilman? Charlotte Perkins yeah, Gilman. Gilman. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah. So, um, I was pretty skeptical of most of her stuff. Um, I read the yellow wallpaper and it's a very good story, very interesting story, but it gets way too much attention for, like, I think it was just popular because a lot of people knew about it and sort of interesting, but like Herland is way better, much more interesting, right? Um, and much more direct. <laughs> Whereas, you know, it's a, it's a, is she, a, is she crazy or is she not crazy? And like, so it has a, a story connected. But it's not as ideological as, uh, so I don't know. I don't, I don't know where to start with more Vernon Lee. I mean, there's this looking at, at the Wikipedia page at, mm-hmm. at the list of works. There's so many books here, novels and nonfiction. Um, in praise of old gardens, 1912 with others. Well, that's, that's obvious. She has the interest in gardens mm-hmm. uh, from this book. Um, Seems really diverse interests. Uh, uh, I'm looking at the uh, ISFDB listing with short fiction. Yeah. Oh, um, but if you go to the Wikipedia, you see this long list of works. Um, a Culture Ghost or Winthrop's Adventures, novella 1881. Um, mm-hmm. Phantom Lover, a fantastic story. Another novella, Hauntings, fantastic stories, 1890. Um but later in her life, she seemed to write more nonfiction stuff. A Ballet of the Nations, a present-day morality, 1915. Mm-hmm. Oh, a, a Satan the Waster, a philosophic war trilogy, 1920. There's, there's bound to be some good stuff in here, but I don't know of any like studies or people who really dug into her work. Me neither. And there's got to be some dissertation somewhere, I'm sure, but... Mm. Uh, Goldmine, I think. Could be. Goldmine. Yeah. There's uh, one of the ones I'm looking at. The Hidden Door. Um, 1887. And then it's been reprinted in More Deadly Than the Male. Masterpieces of from the Queens of Horror. So, th- if I have Does a... Does Cool mention her, her at all? I, I don't remember. remember. I don't remember her being mentioned yeah. by Pool. Yeah. Uh, but he more focuses on American stuff, too. Right. Well, Wastelands is yeah, not more. Just, not just, it's got a lot of European stuff, too. A little bit, but yeah. yeah it's... Um, I, I do... Yeah, I'm not sure. Somebody's got a noisy keyboard. I am not typing. It's me. It's me. I'm typing. I have an event I have to prepare for this afternoon. Okay. Well, we're pretty much done anyways. Right? I think so. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, I was I was just gonna say yeah. Um, I think that the thing that I least like about it is it is still so very um, classist. <laughs> I'm not. Yeah. Uh, I think that that's um, like I was thinking about how Vernon Lee has the ability to do this, and it doesn't say on the Wikipedia entry like she she was born with money, right? But that's the only way you can do it. <laughs> Unless, you know, like, um, she is not a Conan Doyle. She's not, you know, a name that everybody knows and everybody's buying. And I mean, she's not Oscar Wilde with 
plays that everybody's going to see. Um, so the money is not coming from the work. Um, and, you know, you can't have a villa in Italy and travel uh, back to England frequently if you have no money. <laughs> so, um, you know, she's she's hanging out with the Rani of Sarawak. That's fine and everything. But um, if you look at, at the poor people in this story, um, I have a lot they're of barely, They're barely background. Well, mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're crass, just like everybody else in the story, except for Rusty. Snake Lady. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it is, it's, it has a prince right in the title. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I was thinking, uh, when e- Evan first told me the name of the story that he just recorded that I'd never heard of, I thought the snake lady, I thought it's like the way I use the word lady is like, Hey lady, what you doing later? <laughs> I don't mean like, uh, Lord and lady. Right. But I think that that's the way it, it's supposed to be used, even though, um, I almost want to say, if from Prince Albrecht's point of view, he would say it like I do. What's the nice lady doing? But it's not, because that's in the title, right? Prince Albrecht wouldn't say, I am Prince Albrecht, and that is my snake lady. <laughs> <laughs> Prince Albrecht and I approve she, <laughs> she is, she is um, also of the upper class, even though she's a snake lady. <laughs> so, yeah. I, I, I want to see more. Um, that's why I really like folk tales, Mysa, is because they are f- from the lower classes. Mm-hmm. These uh, the, these stories are read by the middle classes who are aspirant to the upper class, you know, lifestyle. Right. But it, I, I I like seeing the rustic stories as well. They're fun. I do this has been the sff audio podcast please join us at www.sffaudio.com and thanks for listening if you enjoyed this podcast consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sff audio What are you doing later, Misa? Um, we uh, it's for the theater company that I work f- with. We mm-hmm. we shot a movie in a in a senior residence um, oh. way back in March, and it's premiering. It's a gala. It's a gala. So we've got a red carpet, and we've got popcorn and sparkling water as champagne, and we're gonna gonna run it and take pictures and tra la la. All right, so. that should that should be fun. La la, that sounded very Tolkien. <laughs> Are you? Uh, I was I was um, looking at all the convention stuff, and I I assume Paul would know. Everybody I saw in the convention stuff, they're all masked. Um, yes. But when I went on, I was I went on the ferry recently twice, and it says masks recommended, and almost nobody's wearing masks. My dentist had me wear a mask, which is hilarious because I have to take it off as soon as I sit in the chair <laughs> yeah um uh what well, will your event be masked what's going on uh no it won't be masked an unmasked event yeah unmasked I mean, unmasked can if they want to but i don't i don't yeah. think anybody will be yeah that's interesting yeah. i i don't know what, what's going on in taiwan is everybody still masked up uh yeah so the 
I think the technically the rule still is you're supposed to mask up when you're walking around and outside busy areas. But I think some journalist asked the CDC head and he recently was changed and he, he, he kind of just said, well, if you're walking, that's that could be called exercise and you don't have to wear a mask when you're exercising. So I think he basically will you know, allows you to walk around without a mask. Mm. But if you're in a big group of people, you should probably keep a mask in your pocket just in case. Yeah. But everyone still wears masks. I, I walked around today without a mask. And you were not arrested. I, I think I won't be arrested. I'm not going to wear it to when I walk do you to take work. It, do you take it with you? Yeah, I could just stick one in my pocket. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think I'm... I mean, I'm still I, probably going to have to do it at work. I don't know what the rules are for teachers yet. I guess oh, yeah, we'll September's out. right around the corner. Yeah. Yeah, I got a, another week of orientation, and I, I got one more day work from home tomorrow because I'm technically still quarantined, even though that's been really relaxed, too. It's like three days of strict quarantine then four days mm, of self-management, mm. but you're not supposed to go to work. So I got one more day. I think my mom has and COVID I can right just now. log in online and put the movies on or put the <laughs> meetings on. Turn off the microphone and video and play video games. Wow. Oh, Elden Ring. Your Elden oh, yeah, Ring. I got Elden Ring now. It's a, is it a multiplayer I, I, game? Well, it's got... Co-op like, or something? Like ghosts, I think, are other players. Like, oh. there's a yeah, yeah, that's that what other join. players are doing. Yeah, And then there's blood stains, and you can watch how other people died. Mm. So, it's, it's, um, so it's not like... And then there's messages. You can leave drop messages, and mm. then... There's no like vulgar messages, so I think there must. Be, I never dropped one, so I don't know what the rules are on that. But they're usually helpful. Someone's like, "Oh, there's a monster on the corner." Hints. So, hmm. um, but That's it's weird. really really hard. It's, it's it's really hard. Doesn't look For like me. a game. For I'm me. just like Skyrim, and it's like that's easy. Just, I like I like the Skyrim just, style, but it's such a time sink. This is, I think, more of a time sink because it takes forever. Like, but it, Oh, yeah. It's, I don't. I don't get it. Um, Paul, have you been playing Elden Ring? I I have not really been beautiful. playing Elden Ring. Mm-hmm. I I'm, I'm, I'm I, as you know, Jesse. I'm terrible at any game that requires hand-eye coordination. I I'm pr- I, I prefer I like the Paradox games myself and I'm, I'm, Unity of oh, Command no. too. Oh, I'm waiting no. for Victoria Three to come out. That's my, yeah. my next big experience. Crusader King, Crusader Kings 3. I have that, uh, and I haven't yet like done the time sync for it to really get yeah, it. Yeah, it, 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 it is a time sync. To uh, I will eventually. Figure out the game. systems and start building your, you know. Yeah. Like, I'm I, gonna I still think Europa Universalis 4. That's my favorite. Okay, thanks, my son. All right, see ya. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. bye. I'll right. be going shortly because there'll be some time for me to play uh, oh, to GM. Well, <laughs> let me just uh, yeah. check the schedule here. I think there was All some right. some minor. Yeah, I'll go to right away once we figure out the schedule. Yeah. All right. All right. Um, so have. Uh, so the one thing that I I think was added that I know about in my head is Black Priestess of Varda. This is uh, by Eric Fennel. This was a cover of Planet Stories. And I was looking at the cover, and I was thinking, I don't... Uh, it's such a great condition. Uh, I wonder if I processed it. I had. Um, and then I thought, I wonder if there's an audiobook. LibriVox didn't have it. But some random 
uh, audiobook publisher had it. And uh, I was like, why doesn't Downpour Audible have it? They didn't. But I bought it from audiobooksnow.com. And uh, it's like three or four hours, I think, maximum. So that's on there. Badge of Infamy, Easy Go. Oh, Evan, you, sh- you sh- totally should have been on uh, Drug of Choice. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, that was, was that was I couldn't it have done that. It was super Philip K. Dickey, man. Such a yeah, Philip K. I had no idea it was going to be a science fiction book. It I'm seems looking like at these. I, I'm thinking we're we're going to be competing because once I get back into podcast, I got to finish the Civil War series, and then yes, and then I am going to do I'm going to do the Mark Twain. It's going to take a year Jeez. probably. Excellent. I I Mark just bought Twain. a Tom Sawyer comic the other day, so I'm looking forward um, to doing that. Island of Pirates. I don't know, Doom. Space Cadet. I should be on. I yeah, guess. Okay. Well, that's uh, Paul's not. That's there. a Saturday. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, I'll be at work. No, it's not a Saturday. Shouldn't be. It says 10 a.m. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, it is a Saturday. It's a Saturday. Um, t- today, today is today's the 21st. Oh no, it is a Sunday. Sorry, should be Sunday. Sunday. Yeah, oh, it's a Sunday, yeah. but it's later. Yes, it's later because my uh, no, no, because oh, okay. uh, yeah, that's I think that might Fred, be rough for me. Oh, the time okay. Runs. But you got a lot of people for that yeah. already. Wait, wait, wait a minute. Um, it's the it's it is a Sunday. It is Sunday. It's, okay, the yeah. 10 a.m. Pacific made me throw off. That was the yeah, Saturday. yeah. Ministry of Disturbance. You can put me on for that. I guess. All right. That. Um. Easy, easy go. I don't know anything about it other than uh, Cora and Paul and I are really enjoying these Michael Crichton books. I think these early Crichtons. Yes. Yeah, the my John so, yeah, Lang part- books. But I, I want to do some later stuff too, because you know, under his real name, because um, uh, I, I, I think though, once you get past Jurassic Park, his quality goes into the toilet. Uh, sphere is not good. Yeah, I agree. But there, but I also haven't read everything, right? And um, uh, they get they tend to get longer and longer, which I I do not like. But uh, Eaters of the Dead was really good, and it's short. And um, we can watch um, we can watch um, uh, the movie. Oh no, we can't. We, it's banned now because we have a Hispanic guy playing an Arabic guy. Oh God, no, Jesse, no, <laughs> Jesse, me. No. It's not me who's doing it, Paul. Jesse, no. It's not me who's no, banning I'll, I'll, these things. Okay, I'm just. Is there anything else we're putting on the schedule? Uh, did you yeah. steal that bit from the uh, the Good and the Bad, the Ugly? They were talking about that. Yeah, I was thinking about it, but I, yeah, I, I can't. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, such a good movie. Yeah, it is. Um, I'm really, you know, what's funny is I was with, uh, the other guy who's not, not the fat guy with the beard. I was like, I'm really glad. Oh, I guess I was with the fat guy with the beard. Is his name Rich? I don't know. One Rich Evans. And, Rich uh, Evans. Uh, oh, the, the handsome younger guy. With oh, the red hair. Why am I forgetting his name? It must be late. He seems fine. I know Mike. Mike. No, Mike's the mean guy. <laughs> oh, yeah, the Star Trek fan, right? I don't know. Um, All I'm saying is I'm glad and, that uh, that young guy Jay, liked it. Jay, Jay, Jay. Jay, that's Jay right. Jay Ballman. I like that he liked it because it's good to like good things. Yeah. He likes good movies. Yeah, he seems to have good I'm surprised because how much he likes Tarantino that he never saw this before. So yeah. Because he watches the most obscure stuff. They're right. They're very much right about... Yeah, maybe go watch a movie from not Marvel era, right? (laughs) Because they made good movies before. Uh, I I think it's like it's something you literally have to 
force yourself to do it. You say, I'm going to watch an old movie. There was some oh. new movie on Netflix that is pushing itself on me. Like, yeah, well, you want to watch me, don't you? Shoving itself all over me. And I'm like, mm, I don't really. <laughs> right? It's some new, uh, it's Daywalkers or something like that. Day- yeah, Day-walk. I kind of agree with the idea that there should just be a, like, if, if for copyright reasons, maybe the government should just buy these. Just have a citizen streaming service for any movie more than 10 years old or something. Well, I mean, uh, it's, it's, I'm, I'm trying to do that myself, but it, it's hard. I'm all one, one man doing it very part time. I start watching, uh, uh, when I'm president, that's what I'll do. (laughs) First first day in office. Streaming service. Yeah. Uh, how, how are you going to pay for it? Hmm. It'll be a minuscule part of the budget. You no, know, you say, I'm, so just I'm cutting the, the Pentagon budget, Na- no more NATO. And then you'd soon have... Uh, Don't no you remember? Man. Deficits don't uh, matter, man. I, 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 I think that's my cue to leave. All right. There's a, there's a, a tweet, um, uh, you know, where they have that's some guy sitting behind a table. Um, and it says, uh, something, something changed my mind. You know, and he's leaning back mm-hmm. like it's not going to be easy or whatever. Um they had one with, uh, Kennedy, um, <laughs> driving in Dallas, right? And on the side of, <laughs> side of the car, you know, with the same sign, it says, um, I want to cut the CIA budget, uh, normalize relations with Cuba, change my mind. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> my, my quote tweet was, um, uh, they did. His mind is all over the, <laughs> seconds later, his mind is all over the back. Uh, the, uh, the trunk <laughs> with, um, I guess it's too soon, right? Let me see. Where is, where is good in the bed and the ugly streaming? Apple TV. You no. have to pay. And, uh, yeah, it's not. You have to get so, the, download the yeah, torrent. But now that I have like, like Netflix, I just, whatever is in there. I like That's why you should, something. that's why it's and, evil. And, but before I used to watch more old movies because I had to like pirate everything. Mm-hmm. So it was just like anything I wanted to watch, I'd have to go and torrent it or whatever. It's discipline. So, you have but to now it's, now I'm just lazy. Yeah. It's it's too easy lazy. To, it makes everybody lazy. And that's why it's so evil. Right. It's so, mm-hmm. but they never have that, that stuff. No, they don't. And it's, and that's why it's so evil. Let's see. And that's, then we settle for out. crappy shit. They have almost no old movies. Of dollars. No. They have, well, I get a little bit more in Taiwan because the rights are a little different here. But yeah, nothing. When I type in fistful of dollars, the closest I get is Django Unchained, Hateful Eight, The Godfather. Fistful of dollars. Yep, here it is. I don't so, think I've seen that one. This is saw, this is the best one. streaming service available is the Russian uh Facebook. Yeah. The only problem is is it's sort of laggy on my computer or my, not on my TV, but it's it's perfectly not laggy on um oh, did it not go through? Oh, I see. I just sent the same thing twice it looks like. Here we are. I got Once a Time Once Upon a Time in the West. That's on Netflix. It's the the related work. That's the only old one. Mm, fistful of dollars. Dollars. But Fistful of Dollars is 
uh, very, I was thinking that was a Conan story. You know, it could, if you wanted to adapt a Conan story, that'd be a good one to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, because it's, it's just been ripped off by everybody, right? Here. So, uh, ok.ru, the Russian Facebook, has, it's not really Facebook, but it's their version of Facebook, right? It's close. Has, um, everything. Almost. Ok.ru. Ok.ru. All right. Are you okay? I remember. Yeah. So what you do is just go to Google, type in the name of the movie, then ok.ru. And then usually that comes up. There it is. Mostly, you know, they have Russian dubs and stuff as well, but... There you go. And it's 720p. That's pretty good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, the only thing I worry about is watching the same movies over and over again. Like, I like Fistful of Dollars, but I don't want to watch it every year. You know, I want to watch it every 10 years at most. It really is that fucking long, 177 minutes. When I saw it there, I'm like, geez, three you hours. You're talking good and bad, the ugly. Yeah. Yeah. I think Once Upon a Time in the West is even longer. I've only seen that one once. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, the Ennio Morricone. You know, there was a game. Um, if Paul was still here, I would see if he remembered it. There was a LucasArts game went back when LucasArts was a thing. Um where they made a Ennio Morricone style uh, first person shooter western game. Mm. Um, it was pretty cool. It was like you're doing a spaghetti western uh, first person shooter. Um, you haven't done any of the Red Dead Redemption games, I take it. No, I know about them. I think that's Marissa more of a. Marissa liked them, right? I don't, I don't she, She's more of a console person, so probably. Mm-hmm. Um. But I sometimes regret not being in the console world because they have some cool games. But I also don't want to be a console person and stuck with the console life. Yeah. I'm kind of with you. All right. I'm going to bed. All right. Thank you, sir. Um, when are we going to do the Ori hit? Ori hit? Can we schedule just that? Just put it on the schedule somewhere. Let's do that right now. All right. Um, uh, it's probably five hours. Nudist no, camp. Uh, nudist yeah, nudist camp. camp. Right, right, right. I can nudist find it for you. Camp. Right now. By Ori. Hit. Two T's. Um, October 17th. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, oh, that's September. Okay, October. Oh, wait. I actually put it all together. O two O. Wait. What? It is 421. Okay. Um, is the 16th of October work for you? Yeah, probably. Okay. So, 10, 16, 2022. New camp. How is it? I mean, it's nothing special. It's... There's nudity, right? Just a, just a crime novel, yeah. Oh, good. Crime novel. I like that. I mean, I think they're mostly smut. More crime novels posing as smut, right? Yeah. 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 Thank you, sir. 
Much appreciated. All right. We'll see you around. See you on the internet. Bye-bye. Yep. I, I uh-huh. took it over to the island with me after... Um, Why many... did you take it to the island? Well, because I wanted to set it up, and it takes forever to install all your programs and get it all working the way you want it. And I would have time over there. So I, I took it over the island. I plug it into the new monitor I bought. Um, mm. And uh, it doesn't fucking come on. Like, the power's coming on. I'm like, what the fuck's wrong with this? I keep switching around and say, okay, the monitor's broken. Nope. Plug in my phone into it. Works fine. I was going to say, okay, I'm mad. <laughs> Except so, that's useless. So I just said, oh, well, we'll see. I'll take it back to the place I bought it from. That was it? That's the end of your story? You took nope. it back? Nope. Uh, so I finally come back on Friday and take it, uh, get get up at 3.30 in the morning, get on the ferry, uh, first ferry, and then, you know, it's like four-hour trip, right? I get to the, I, I'm looking, getting to my community, and I see, oh, the store's not opening for another hour, so I go home, have a shower, because there's a, a water shortage, um, so I hadn't been sh- showering as often as I prefer, and... um I, I get out of the shower and say, I'm going to go rip a Terra asshole off. I don't know. One of those phrases where you, I'm going to make them pay or whatever. <laughs> now I'm like, oh, I'll just go to the store. So I go to the store and I, um, I, uh, see the guy behind the counter who put it together. And, uh, I explain it, you know, it comes on, but nothing on the monitor. And, uh, he, he says, oh, and he, lifts it, and he starts um, to go to plug it in to replicate the problem, right? And uh, I notice he doesn't try and put it in the ports I was putting it in. I say, what what about those two up top there? Where it says HDMI and uh, (laughs) DV, (laughs) or um, display port. And he says, oh, yeah, yeah, this is a Ryzen processor, and, and you have a video card down there. And I'm like, oh, shit. In my defense, the video card ports are all black, and everything around it is black. <laughs> and it was a little underlit in the in the you know basement where I was trying to plug it in. And of course, he plugs it in; it's working fine. So, long story short, I'm stupid. <laughs> I'm blind. Wow. So, oh, these newfangled machines with their visible ports. Yeah, they're invisible, visible ports. <laughs> yeah, uh, I hear uh, Evan is back in Taiwan and back in his uh, tiny apartment. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm all. Ba- I'm back home. And this is this uh, is bad. I... Is it sad? Is it bad or is sad? What, what's what you? Uh, well, I got solitude for the first time in six weeks. <laughs> Thank God for solitude. Thank God for solitaire. Oh, wait, I'm just being a card about that. Oh, wait, sorry. Or maybe a Bond girl. I don't know. I'm being weird. <laughs> Wasn't there, like, some convention, Paul, that you went to? I went to Jenga. Oh, no, that was, Jenga? like, last week? Was it last um, week? No, it was a couple weeks ago. Oh, next okay. next week, I go to WorldCon. Oh, that's, I, I, thought, I thought maybe that was on now. No, world, no, World. world Worldcon is in Necronomicon weeks. was on this like till yesterday I think Necronomicon oh. and then uh, there was another one um, uh, 
Will went to um, Pulp Con, Pulp Jan, I don't know, something in Philadelphia, maybe. I don't know. He went, he went somewhere where they do a lot of pulp magazine convention mm-hmm. stuff. There's a lot of conventions I'm not going to. <laughs> I'm not very conventional. I feel you. Evan, have you ever been to any of these other than professional academic? I've been to historical conferences. There you go. Where it's just. Never admitted Gen Con. And that was always in Wisconsin. Apparently, that's pretty big. Uh, Yeah, I mean, it started in Wisconsin and then moved to Indiana. Why? Um, Because it got big. (laughs) We're too big for the state. Seriously, though. That's a good state. They, yeah. well, well, because the facilities weren't big enough in first starting Lake Geneva, then it went to Milwaukee, but it outgrew the the facilities in Milwaukee, and so that's why it moved to I the Indiana Grow Milwaukee. <laughs> well, well, but 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 if there's not enough hotel and convention space to actually hold all the people who want there. I I can see why. I mean, now there's a push to try to get it out of Indiana because Indiana is a horrible state, but they kind of locked it. What's there. wrong with Indiana? It's a very conservative state that just voted to abandon. Well, board so. gamers are a pretty conservative lot. But but there's also lots of role playing in there as well. Mills are not a lot of those <laughs> are not a very conservative. Oh, lot. speaking of which, did you guys see that ad for the new? I said invest. It might be an investor ad. You know, like buy our stock. Uh, the ad for the new um, Dungeons and Dragons. No. Uh-huh. No. So it was on Twitter. <laughs> what, 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 we, we, not the new, what you mean? Oh, the, the investment ad that's actually a. It's not an, it, it, it doesn't say this is an investment ad, but basically, uh, somebody mentioned, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense. This is like, um, uh, why you should invest your money in whatever company owns Dungeons and Dragons now, sort of ad, because oh, like. Oh, no, I did not see that ad. So no. it's, you know, like, um, for example, EA, right, will, uh, the, computer game company will like announce games that aren't going to be out for years. And the reason they do that is because it's a triple a title and, you know, we're working on great things here and your money's safe with us. Sort of, you know, it's, it's a way to up your stocks. Right. Um, with, uh, you know, all the big companies do that. Um, so the ads can be like a, a little bit skewed. Um, it's like, this is going to speak to the new generation or something like that. It, it's not about, what customers want as much as it's as um, like the investors can be uh, assured that we're going to do well based on this. So one of the things um, it has in the ad is uh, announcement of upcoming things like spell jammers coming in. Two well, years yeah, spell jam is out actually. <laughs> or whatever. Last night. Oh, whatever. You know, sorry. I some new, s- some new thing. Uh, I don't know. R- I'm going to say Ravenloft, but I don't think that was on the list. I was I was more focused on a couple other things. One one of them was there was a, a Asian lady saying, "Finally, I can I I I never wanted to play this game because there's nobody in it who looked like me." <laughs> um, and and somebody pointed out, "Oh, Oriental Adventures, remember?" Um, <laughs> that was from Oriental, a long time ago. Oriental Adventures is a really problematic. Uh, what? Campaign. Oh, here, here, here's here's what we always says. dug it when we were kids. I mean, from the perspective of Asian players, it's incredibly problematic. Why? I, the word um, orient because, is, is I, I, a nice I, I, word. If, 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 if it would be like uh, saying the U.S. is cowboys running through Manhattan. 
<laughs> that sounds like a good movie. Actually, I believe no, that's no, Midnight and, Cowboy. And, and that's and, and, and that's and that's what that's what New York that's what America is like. Cowboys riding horses through Manhattan. That, so there's just, a few it, movies it, like that. Midnight Cowboys well, one, but there's also like a uh, there was one. Midnight, Jesse, you're missing the point. Uh, yeah, I, it, 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 it's just like let's let's just take let's take a little bit of this country, a little bit of this country, this country, stick them all together without any cultural context or rationality. And it's, 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 it's very much, um, it's very much a outsider's mixed up gaze of not understanding the fundamental cultures of East Asia. And I mean, when I was a kid, I don't know, just like, there's some interesting things here to think about. Like, um, like I've heard role players, talk like well it's okay in this world if we have like you know women knights because it's a fantasy world right yeah yeah so so why can't you have samurai running around new york city please Um, please do in fact that that's a many a good movie yeah no american ninja or samurai running through like forgotten realm whatever that oh oh Jesse, I am not clicking on that. Um, the video I can't is on that tweet anyway because the, that person it, I blocked. I understand that, but the video is in that, so you can well, click through. I, well, I'll, I'll click through well, to the YouTube for you. It. Okay, hold on. I, I explains why I've not seen it. Oh God, Hang on. Um, that is a very offensive. That's um, I mean, he's allied with the people who troll me, Jesse. So uh, no. Right. Well, let me just get I mean, the YouTube I mean, link. I mean, he's friends with the people who are fucking doxing me. Yeah, that's bad. But I don't. I I'm not endorsing I, the guy. I, I'm not interested in anything he says. I, I'm not, uh, Paul. I'm. It was just a YouTube link. There it is. D and The last group I was in, like not just this uh, kind of issues of gender, or race, uh, which I didn't talk that much about, but I was always interested in like more realistic economics. And I kind of pushed my DM to think about that a little bit more. About, <laughs> or how magic is being like interpreted and used I love you're, culturally. You're, you're in trying these, to make your DM a better DM. And and I would be told, like, this is fantasy. We're going to do whatever we want. Fucking my world. And so, okay. So when I think about this perspective, I, I'm, I'm okay with the samurai, I guess. Uh, 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 do you know? Because, how, uh, because all the other archetypes are from various ancient cultures oh i love uh, i love thinking about how in the in the 70s uh every white kid wanted to be bruce lee i think that that's really cool and every uh, you know uh, there, there's all these black exploitation movies where all these guys know karate or kung fu or whatever it is um it's it's like uh this is uh love it's not hate and uh, when you're telling stories and you're looking at, I don't know, <sighs> bringing something, some aspect into your story from a culture that is not the one you are super familiar with, um, as a reader, I think that that's really cool. It, it's what m- makes me interested, right? Conan, I don't want to have any story where he's in Samaria. Those are stupid. I want to see him go to weird places because then I get to go with him. I don't want to, you know, hear about, you know, what <laughs> what he's doing in Samaria because that's stupid. And Samaria is, is home. We're visiting exotic lands. That's cool. And, you know, getting to meet uh, Kung Fu guys and say, wow, he has a 
he has a superpower I don't understand. So, um, the, in the video, uh, they have, uh, you know, an actor say, I could never imagine myself as a hero because D&D never had a person who looked like me. And I was, I was like, yeah, that's funny because I'm six foot two. <laughs> I was tall, uh, you know, I grew to six, six two when I was probably 12, right? <laughs> and, uh, I wanted to play hobbits, three foot one. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, uh, that, that's not normal, right? It's okay to not play a guy who looks like you. Yeah. Occasionally I would play a barbarian, but it was, uh, usually a barbarian with black hair, which I do not have, right? Uh, a black straight hair. I wonder why, right? This is what you do as a kid you, is you don't try and model yourself in this world generally. So I, I think that that script is being written by people who are thinking about investment and then the other thing that really bothered me in this video is they they kept going on about how fifth edition is the last edition of dungeons and dragons i'm like where have i heard that before oh yeah remember microsoft said windows 10 is the last edition of windows it's all going to be incremental from now on and now like like a year later when we get windows 11 right <laughs> they just lie. They just lie to to boost their sales immediately, and they're not thinking about their customer base. The other thing, I, I think, I would tell investors like, there's definitely going to be a third, a sixth, I don't know, a sixth edition. Well, the, not right if you're not if you're doing fifth editions. Not if you're doing uh, quarterly based. Like most investors are not long term, and most corporations are trying to run themselves into the ground. Right there. They're trying to do quarterly based profit returns rather than, you know, this is a 30 year investment sort of thing. And then uh, the other thing that was really sort of weird is they talked about um, playtesting being like you can download the modules now and then we'll take your feedback and uh, make changes to it. And they say, oh, that sounds good. But that's actually something that they're supposed to do internally. And when corporations do that, like the model of, game testing, uh, like video game testing, um, that is like sort of a recipe for cheaping out rather than like, it, it's a strategy, but I, I participated in one of those early, uh, uh, get a free copy of the game, give us your feedback and we will, and you know, do auto reporting of errors and stuff. And then you, you get your name in the, in the, in the book at the end, like, it was it was not a good process. I think doing your own internal uh, playtesting is actually better for the game because it doesn't s- sort of spread the the badness. Like I, I don't want to play a bad game. I don't want to br- play a broken game. But that's the sort of the model we get with with computer games now is they come out on Steam early access and then they eventually announce it. It's like a, something a small company would do because they have to. And they're doing this like a, this is a big company and we're doing it because it's a good model. And I, I think that, that it's like bad man, bad management. I don't know. There was one other thing um, is they had... Uh, uh, you're going to be able to get customized minifigs 
or I guess they're not manic figs. What do, what do we call the lead figures in Dungeons and Dragons? Figurines? Oh, they're not lead anymore. Miniatures. Miniatures. Okay. So um, they're they're vinyl now, which is probably better. You know, we don't have a whole bunch of <laughs> lead lying around the house. I don't know. Maybe. Um, but uh, instead of like, if they were. What they should do is, like, develop a standard and then just, like, have everybody be able to 3D print their own stuff at home, you know? Like, just develop a standard, and if you don't have one, you can get it done at your local comic book store or a game store. And that would, like, drive sales to go to visit that store, right? I don't know. seems like... uh, Who owns Dungeons & Dragons now? I don't even know. It used to be Wizards of the Coast. Um, some corporation that does, I don't like. Who Whoever owns, owns Wizards of the Coast? Is it Hasbro? I bet it's Hasbro. Hasbro. Oh, no. Yes, it is Hasbro. Oh, right. no. Well, I guess they're an old <laughs> company. They know what they're doing, but, uh, I don't really know that. I remember something about Hasbro. I think, didn't they buy up, like, Avalon Hill and then, like... Oh, shit. Just, I think they, like, pocketed that whole catalog. Like they oh just shit! Yeah, they, they're gone, right? Avalon. Yeah, that that whole catalog is is gone. Yeah. Oh yeah, shit! Like, yeah, so the, hundreds of dollars for a copy of some of those games, and they're good, good shit. Yeah, that's not a good sign. When did they acquire D and D? Um, it was years ago, I think. Yeah, you know, it doesn't really matter because people people are doing a lot of uh, you know knockoff D and D now, right? Uh, what's the one you play, Pathfinder? Yeah, we do Pathfinder. It's it's a knockoff, right? It's it's everything. well, it's a, it's I think it's a third edition. Like when fourth edition came out, they basically reprinted third edition as Pathfinder, and then they they have their second edition of that, which it's actually it holds up. I think it's pretty good. Okay. I had to learn a whole new system, but it's not that hard. What well, what's different? Like you can still use the same dice and all that stuff. What's what's well, different? the way characters are made, it's it's actually better. I think for character design, like you have more options. It's more about like the history of your character plays a bigger role mm. in their abilities and their stats. Uh, they get rid of, they try to get rid of a lot of the race cliches. They call them ancestries. And then each one is very diverse. That's what, but that's really what D&D is doing now too, right? They're doing the same well, thing. Like I remember when I was playing fifth edition with that last as with, they, the races were still pretty cliche and the classes were very cliche. That's what I liked about Pathfinder was just the, mm. the vast number of classes that, Cool inquisitors and gunslingers and swashbucklers and all that. Yeah, swashbucklers. And each could be really tuned with feats to to different things. So they were doing that in Dungeons and Dragons, right? They were always adding barbarian class or or, or monk, right? Yeah. Which is was the kung fu guy. And I just I just think it's it's, it's I have more fun making characters in Pathfinder. I, I think there there are people who are into the idea of like just get to the game. Don't spend any time making your character. Yeah, that's fifth edition, I think. Is it? Okay. It, the rules are really, really kind of simplified, aren't they? I don't know. Yes. I only played like one campaign, but I just, Yes. They they've streamlined it as much as possible. Yeah. I guess mice is not a game. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and they person. did a little bit of that with Pathfinder Second Edition, but not, not too much. Have you ne- have you never played an RPG? Liza? No. No. Wow. It's like uh we're talking about dancing and you've never danced. <laughs> <Something like that. laughs> 
You see, what you do is you, you shuffle to the left, you shuffle to the right, <laughs> put your right foot forward and put your right foot back. <laughs> Shake it all about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, how, how, how did that not happen? Were, were you not hanging with the weird kids in high school? I was not, no. Um, I watched my kids do it, but it made me dizzy, so. There's a, there's a, explaining it to kids is kind of weird. Um, like what, like, uh, you know, where's the board? <laughs> there's no, the board is in your mind. <laughs> <laughs> my kids both play Dungeons and Dragons. How do they like it? They like it. They both of them, they're good. Are they still playing? Yeah, they still play. Wow. That's mm-hmm. interesting. It's had a resurgence um, yeah. with the youth. Where is Will still in Japan? Yep. And and they play D and D over there. He was playing it here. I don't know if he's playing it oh, there. Oh, okay, okay. But and a lot of playing. people are playing online as well, which is very mm-hmm. odd. I don't. Yeah. I, don't know. I guess that could work. Paul, you play like on tabletop I, simulator yes, or something. I do, and in fact, we're playing again today because I'm not going to be available the next couple of weeks. All right. All right. Well, uh, in case that is uh, coming very soon, we should probably do a show. Probably. Probably. All right. Um, I want to just check, see if I downloaded that file I made of the the PDF. I think I did. Download. There we go. No. No. I don't think it has any pictures. It's been a long time since I looked at it. Where did you get the text from, uh, Evan? Uh, the Classic Fantasy Anthology by... The oh, you read it straight out of the book. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, what the heck? That yeah, uh, that's, didn't have any pictures. It didn't I have was, any pictures? Uh, okay. reading through it. And a lot of those... like that, There's a lot of like translations in that anthology, which is uh-huh. really cool. There's a lot of great stuff that maybe you're not getting in under anthologies. Um, original translations and things. Um, so that stuff was all copyrighted. And a lot of the English stuff, there were audio versions of. I didn't find one of this, so I just threw right. it together in a couple hours, obviously. Obviously. Um, so let's, let's start so I can rip you a new one or something. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, I'll just board one afternoon. No, save it, save it. It's not uh, like I published it on LibriVox. <laughs> I just threw it up on my YouTube channel. Jesse. Uh, Paul, uh, who's next, Paul? Oh, I had not looked. Evan, uh, Mice has been on, probably been on more stuff. Oh, hold, hold, Mice, hold, do you hold, remember? Hold, 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 hold on, let me find out. I have this on a tab on your thing. Um, um, right now, right now, Mice is one, oh, oh, I mean, this only reflects stuff that's actually been published, so at, Mice is one ahead of Evan. I think Evan's going to pass Mice shortly. <laughs> but right now, not, it's not today, because they're, they're going to ahead of Evan. All right. All right. You're, you're still, you're still in the lead, Mice. <laughs> well, I don't know. Okay. All right. Here we go. Hi, I'm Jesse. Oh, Paul. Ah, shit, Paul. Make sure you're recording. Um, I am recording. Okay, good. Uh, I I wasn't sure I was. Uh, Sorry. Here we go.